Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-centered encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com. We, we know that the sexualization of enslaved women is crucially important to the system of slavery. Uh, and I argue in the book that it's not a bug, it's a feature of the system of slavery. Absolutely. It's absolute, absolutely, absolutely essential. And that in itself is, is not entirely new. Uh, but, but what I think is, is also clear is that enslavers, especially slave traders, use the sexualization of women to... Um, to enhance their profits, uh, to make their commodities more attractive to purchasers, uh, to get uh, enslavers uh, who have, you know, they're down in Louisiana, Mississippi, whatever, they have choices. They could borrow or not borrow. They could buy more slaves or not buy more slaves. Everything has trade-offs. If you buy more slaves, if you borrow more money, you have to pay that back. And then you have to make calculations like where is the price of cotton going? And you do these things in the middle of all of the, this sort of sea of economic uncertainty and change as prices go up and down. And as sometimes, you know, you get into a bubble sort of situation where you have a cotton boom that you should know because you've experienced this before is going to eventually burst. But what slave traders want to do is get slave owners or potential purchasers to override uh, that, that kind of thinking and to just go ahead and buy. Well, uh, to what extent they do this uh, intentionally or not, uh, they they talk, um, uh, they end up accomplishing that goal by using the sexualization, uh, not just of female slaves, um, or they use the sexualization of female slaves to enhance, I would argue, uh, the extent to which people are willing to purchase all slaves by creating the slave market by getting people to think of the slave market as a place where you buy sex. And we know from behavioral economic studies, or at least there's some pretty strong data suggesting, that when you introduce sex uh, into a buying and selling situation, men purchase more and they purchase with less, um, less concern for ultimately paying off 
whatever it is they're buying on credit. And there's a number of studies that suggest that. And it looks to me like that's, that's exactly what happened. Well, you know, it's, it's not, um, uh, I mean, you see where I'm going. Um, you, don't, um, you don't sexualize animals. I mean, I suppose some people do, but, um, <laughs> but, but not on a large scale, <laughs> right? Okay. Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, December 25th, 2015. So I have been told. Uh, We left with a cliffhanger for last week's book study session, so we want to hop right to it. But very quickly, uh, that was the author of the book that we are reading, The Half Has Never Been Told, uh, written by Edward Baptist, white man, suspected racist. Uh, That was him that you heard at the very beginning. Uh, That's a segment that's on C-SPAN, book TV from last summer, I thought very important, a point that we have been uh, making uh, through the first two sessions of the book, uh, even though I think we have uh, been emphasizing that the rape of black people was total. Black males, black females, uh, black children uh, was total during uh, the older period of white supremacy enslavement and continues right on 2016 right around the corner. Uh, also. We're in chapter two, just for folks uh, who are following along, kind of the early portion of chapter two. So if you want to keep up, my page numbers do not correspond. Again, uh, we ended right when they were about to give details on one of the uh, largest slave rebellions uh, in this area of the world before the Civil War. Uh, Without further ado, we will go ahead and get started. Context of white supremacy. This is our third study session on Edward Baptist's The Half Has Never Been Told. Audio segment number one. They hailed from many places. Based on his name, for instance, we could guess that Amar was born in the Muslim-influenced Sahel region of West Africa. The mulatto Harry, owned by William Kenner and Stephen Henderson, was probably from the Chesapeake. Kwamana, owned by territorial attorney James Brown, may have been from present-day Ghana and had probably been pulled here by his owner's success in opening the international slave trade to Louisiana. As for Charles de Londe, who would be credited and blamed as the leader and instigator of the revolt, we don't know precisely who he was. He might have been Creole, Louisiana-born in other words. But many contemporary accounts said he was born in Saint-Domingue and that he served as André's commandeur, or enslaved overseer. We do know that in 1809, before leaving Santiago as a refugee, Auguste Girard had bought a man named Charles. This Charles had been born in Saint-Domingue in 1787 and was thus old enough to remember a little bit of 1791. When Girard reached New Orleans from Cuba, he sold 11 slaves. One was Charles. Manuel André was the buyer. Perhaps this Charles raised in the vortex of both slave and sugar-making revolution, was the same one to whom André had given the task of organizing his field slaves in the coordinated process of harvesting and refining sugarcane. Perhaps Girard's Charles was the Charles de Londe who supposedly called the meeting on the levee on the night of the 5th. As is almost always the case with slave revolts and allegations of revolt conspiracies, 
We only know what we know from confessions made by some of the captured rebels. Perhaps no is not the right verb to use when the information comes from tortured people desperate to save their own skins. From what one can gather, however, it seems that after the gathering under the levee, the leaders, Amar, Quamana, Harry, and others in the fraternity of Commandeur and sugar refiners up and down the German coast, went back to their respective plantations to spread the word among those whom they trusted. Except for Charles, he headed down the river toward the long lot owned by Etienne Trepanier. A mile and a half later, Charles reached the Trepanier place, where his woman lived. Charles, as commandeur, would have been selected for charisma, for the strength of mind and body to impose his will on those who were supposed to follow him, for the intelligence and discretion to know when to push and when to back off from pushing. These qualities probably made him attractive to many women. These qualities also made him well-suited to lead a revolt. By Sunday evening, Charles and a few others were traveling, under cover of darkness, back up the river toward the Andri place. Augustin, one of the Trepanier's slaves, later claimed that he only went with Charles because the commandeur held a gun on him. Perhaps Charles feared that Augustin was a traitor, or perhaps Augustin concocted the gun story to save his own skin. Whatever the case, most of this core group hid in the woods near the Andri place, while Charles went back to work under the nose of Manuel Andri and his adult son, Gilbert. As the fugitives waited, perhaps they discussed an event they all knew something about. The revolt in the Plain de Nord of Saint-Domingue. That revolt had also been planned by high-status slaves like Commandeur. There, too, the leaders had gathered in a nighttime ceremony and there the rebels had also relied on amassing a powerful force from the sugar plantations in order to overwhelm the white opposition before it could coalesce. The key of the plotters' 1811 strategy was a march straight on to New Orleans. They apparently believed that they outnumbered whites by enough on the German coast to sweep all before them. Then they could take the city, the hinge of slaveholder power in the southwestern United States, and hold it as the heart of a slave coast in revolt. Some of the commandeur and house servants would have understood that 1811 was a particularly propitious moment because of Louisiana's confrontation with Spain on the borders of West Florida, the land from Mobile in Alabama, to the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain. The United States claimed that this was actually its property. Governor Claiborne had ordered General Wade Hampton, the same Hampton who had bought Charles Ball in South Carolina, now seeking to gain both glory and access to new land as a recently mobilized officer of the U.S. Army, to march his troops away from their usual post in New Orleans and plant the U.S. flag in West Florida. On January 6, however, someone, whether premature rebels or a runaway, attacked a mail coach. Hearing this news, Claiborne ordered Hampton to delay his scheduled march toward West Florida. Late on Monday the 7th, he sent another note to Hampton describing what he knew, relative to the movements of the insurgents, and ordering Hampton to keep his troops near the city. The sun rose and set on Tuesday, January 8. Upriver, behind the Andri barracks, Charles gathered the enslaved people who would follow him. At midnight, they marched to Manuel Andri's front door. They hewed it down with an axe and burst in. They searched for Manuel, the man who called himself their master. His son blocked the way, so they cut the young man down. 
A glancing axe stroke pursued the father as he hurled himself out the window, but he hit the ground running and reached a boat by the levee. Andre cast out into the river for the west bank of the Mississippi, where he planned to raise the alarm. On the east, the rebels were already moving toward New Orleans by the river road. At each property they passed, recruits joined them. On Andre's place, Jupiter was among the first. Why? Later he would say he wanted to go to the city to kill whites. Two parishes lay in between them and the city, a little more than 50 miles as the river bends. Next, the rebels stormed onto the land of parish judge Achille Truard, who had heard them coming. He hid in the cane fields with his nieces as the band swept by. As the sun rose, the rebels pushed into St. Charles Parish and through plantation after plantation. Picou, Kenner and Henderson, Trepanier, and Delhomme. At 6.30 on the morning of January 9, the commandeur Pierre woke up his enslaver, Hermogène Labranche. Slaves from the Delhomme place just up the river had told Pierre that a rebel army was marching. Later, Pierre would say the messengers had fled the rebels, but they could have been scouts who wanted to know if Pierre would have the residents prepared to join when the brigands appeared at Labranche's slave quarters. Pierre chose instead to alert Labranche, who leapt out of bed and fled to the woods with his wife and a slave named Francois. Yet as the rebels poured through Labranche's sugar operation, ten joined. They marched on. Lindor, owned by Kenner and Henderson, strode in front playing the drum. Maturin, claimed by the Broussards, held his sword like an officer. So did Dagobert, the commandeur from Joseph Delhomme's cane fields. Hippolyte found a horse and mounted it. Raymond, who joined at Labranche's, carried a musket. Others bound cane knives on long poles, like pikes. Some improvised banners. Born in Louisiana, Kentucky, Saint-Domingue, Jamaica, the Congo, Igbo villages east of the Niger Delta, and Virginia, the 500 rebels marched downriver out of a cloud of smoke rising from burning houses and cane sheds. For the past decade, white men had been hustling heads through the streets of New Orleans in strings of negre brew. Now the roles had changed. By afternoon, most of the whites of the German coast had either fled or were fleeing. When one stubborn enslaver, Jean-François Trepanier, Etienne's relative, stayed put, one of his own house slaves, a young man named Cook, chopped off his head with an axe. The rebels threw the body over the levee and kept moving. By the time night closed, they had overrun the Destrihan property, just west of the town that today bears the same name. They made camp at the Jacques Fortier place, just over the Jefferson Parish line, less than 20 miles from the one spot on earth that both they and the United States needed to control. The first panicked rider had galloped into the streets of New Orleans at 10 a.m. on January 9. Throwing down his reins in the Place d'Armes, he ran up the stairs of the Cabildo, banged on Claiborne's door, and poured out his news. The governor immediately ordered a 6 p.m. curfew, closed the gates of the French Quarter, and shuttered the arsenal, today the site of the U.S. Mint Museum. One Louisiana historian argues that Claiborne did so because city-based allies of the rebels had made an attempt to break in and seize its weapons. Claiborne also dispatched several different groups of armed men up the river road toward the rebel army. January 10, early morning, before dawn. The rebels' camp was cold. 
Fires lit early in the evening had been extinguished earlier, when a few shots rang out in the middle of the night. For the rest of the night, the rebels lay behind a picket fence that enclosed Fortier's sugar house and storage buildings. But now a louder rustling told Charles and his men to prepare. Noise from the river road, but now also from the levee, and from the north. Men peered over the fence. In the gathering light they saw, advancing up the road, Wade Hampton's regulars and volunteers from New Orleans. From the levee on the right, seamen on foot, and from the swamp to the left, more volunteers. From behind, they suddenly heard horses snorting, hooves clopping. They were caught in a trap. Obeying a command or a previously made plan, the rebels rose from behind the fence. A few who had horses mounted up. The rest turned and ran, thundering full speed, but without a shout, back up the river road. Shots rang wildly, and the mounted cavalry from the west bank scattered as the rebels passed through them and disappeared into the mist. Embarrassed, the cavalry tried to regroup. Hampton's infantrymen were already marching in pursuit of the rebels. They had come more than fifteen miles, tramping all night, but he was determined to end this rebellion before it could spread. The bands of soldiers set off up the road, stomping past a body that lay in front of Fortier's house. It was Telemaque, a vieux negre, old negro, who had been enslaved by Destrehan until he had joined the rebellion the previous afternoon. Fifteen miles the rebels ran, stumbled, walked, and ran again over the next four hours. Some slipped off across ragged fields and headed for the swamps, but strays risked being run down by the horse-mounted rulers of the German coast, who bayed at their heels. Far behind the rebels and the harassing horsemen tramped Hampton and his men, armed, unlike many of the rebels who had thrown aside their pikes, trained and determined. At last, the cavalry came riding back to Hampton with news. The rebels, too tired to run anymore, were making a stand in a grove of trees at Bernal Benedis plantation. Only about one hundred were left. The rest were hiding, caught, or lying dead along the road. Hampton's troops quickened their pace. Soon they were at Bernadies. They formed up next to the cavalry and then charged the rebels' improvised line. The rebels scattered, dodging saber blows and bullets. Cracker, the longtime Ebo runaway, Dawson, who was butler in McCutcheon's sugar refiner, and a dozen more fell. Others surrendered. Some the whites killed on the spot. Others they bound. They prodded Amar into line with the rest. He had survived the militia charge, but he had been slashed across the throat. The militia marched the captives back down the river road toward the Destrehan plantation, while a white resident of St. John the Baptist named Charles Paret marshaled a group of men on horseback who swept even farther back up the river, going from labor camp to labor camp. They ordered Commandeur, who had not gone with the rebels, to drive their slave forces out into the fields to work. Make them act as though nothing had happened, even as squads of militia combed the woods for fugitives, forcing those they caught to point out fellow rebels who were trying to melt back into the ranks of laborers. On the 12th, Perret and his men returned to the Andri house from one such expedition, carrying the heads of rebels Pierre Grief and Hans Vimpren. Andri showed Perret and his troops, who included several free men of color, his own trophies. In a circle of lamplight, Surrounded by a dark yard full of white men with muskets and bayonets, André had three men tied up. Barthelmy, who had been Trepanier's sugar artisan, 
a man called Jacques Bacnil, Jack Bucknell, and prize of prize, Charles de Londe. There were enough white landowners present for a court, said Perret. A U.S. Navy man who was present reported what came next. Delonde had his hands chopped off with an axe. We can imagine André, who had lost his son to one of these so recently, delivering the blow through the wrists onto the chopping block, then shot in one thigh and then the other until they were both broken, then shot in the body. But what else to do? Quickly, before Charles bled to death, someone broke open a bale of straw. They threw the writhing man into the straw, scattered it on him, and thrust in the torches. And so Charles de Londe died with the flames crackling his skin. The next day, the 13th, German coast enslavers convened a more organized mechanism of judgment at the Destrehan plantation. Over the next 48 hours, they brought 32 captured rebels, one by one, to stand before them on the brick floor. Some tried to defend themselves as part of a large group, so large that it would surely be impossible to execute them all. Guillot, once owned by John Palfrey, now by Kenner and Henderson, was implicated by others, who said he stole a horse and led others off the plantation. He deflected blame by saying that all the Negroes of Kenner and Henderson had followed the brigands. The message from those who sat in judgment was clear. Sell out other rebels, name their names, and thus save your life. Some talked. Coupidon, owned by the Labranche brothers, and Louis of Trepanier, implicated dozens of men, some dead and some alive. Once Coupidon and Louis had pointed out so many of those in custody, others had less to sell. The final group played their last cards very differently. Quamana stood before the tribunal on the 14th. According to the tribunal's notes, he avowed that he had figured in a remarkable manner in the insurrection. What it meant for him to avow is unclear. Did he confess voluntarily? Was he tortured? Did he say something else, and did the judges simply write what they wanted? Only one thing is definitive. Il n'a dénoncé personne. He named no one. Nor did Robin, nor Harry, Hippolyte, Cook, Ned, or Etienne. Then the judges had Amar brought out before them. They accused him of being a chief of the brigands, denounced by many. He said nothing in response. Perhaps he couldn't speak, even had he tried. Perhaps nothing would come from him but the wind whistling through the hole in his throat as he struggled for breath. On the morning of the 15th, the judges pronounced the sentences. Twenty would die. Even Coupidon and Louis did not save themselves. They too were to be executed, just like the silent ones. Death was to come by firing squad. Each convicted rebel was to be taken to his respective home plantation, to be executed in front of all the gathered slaves. Over the next day or so, the militia carried out the sentences, shooting the condemned and decapitating their corpses while silent crowds watched. In New Orleans, meanwhile, eight were hanged for alleged complicity in the insurrection. Another seven, including Charles de Londe, had already been executed by the court convened at Andres. Enslavers claimed compensation for at least ten others executed, making at least forty-five condemned and killed by the state. Together with the people killed during and after the battles of January 10, at least sixty-six, 
and probably close to 100 enslaved people lost their lives. Gilbert André and Jean-François Trepanier may have been the only whites killed by the rebels. Both the 1811 rebellion and the Haitian Revolution began as conspiracies organized by a few commandeurs in the most densely cultivated area of the sugar district. Both were launched at a time when the enslavers were divided and facing internal and external threats. Yet despite the high cost they paid in lives, the 1811 rebels had failed to capture New Orleans or seriously threaten U.S. or slaveholder rule in the lower Mississippi Valley. And they failed for reasons that prophesied much about the second great era of slavery in the history of the modern world, an era that not only would be very different from the first, but would shape a different, wider, more modern world. The swift and ruthless response to the 1811 rebellion tells us that enslavers in the southwestern United States were different from those in the Caribbean. They were wiser in their power, for they had been taught by many lessons. Those of the Haitian Revolution, seen from afar by most, though some of the enslavers in Louisiana had been there. Those of the American Revolution, which still was not that long ago. And those of the seemingly endless wars against Native Americans. They were more numerous than their island counterparts, and they were better at war. They were more clever in their cruelty. They were more ruthless and decisive in a crisis. And whites in the most slavery-dominated districts could call on two key elements of force that Saint-Domingue whites had lacked. The first was a white majority in the regional and national theaters. Even though enslaved people outnumbered free whites in many plantation districts in the United States, such as in the German coast where they had a 70% majority, they never formed the 90% supermajorities common on the Sugar Islands. The second was a federal government dominated by enslavers that was committed to putting down slaves' collective resistance. Federal troops were the key to suppressing the 1811 revolt. The government protected the enslavers' enterprises, and they, in turn, extended the power of the American state by occupying and developing territory. By reputation, slaveholders were stubborn traditionalists who forgot nothing and learned nothing. In reality, they continued to learn and adapt to promote their own interests. But after the 1811 revolt, they increased their regulation and surveillance of the slave population, taking them to new heights. Local militia trained more intensely. Patrols swept slave quarters with new regularity. Claiborne, anxious as ever, now put the area on alert whenever he heard a rumor of revolt, like the one that came to his ears right before Christmas in 1811. Louisiana's state government rewarded informers with freedom. Free people of color in the United States were always a tiny minority who sided with the white majority during crisis, in contrast to Saint-Domingue, where many had joined the rebellion. Supporters of Louisiana statehood in Congress used the insurrection as an argument for their cause, suggesting that a territory that was exposed to peculiar dangers, but that produced great wealth for the nation, should have a sovereign voice in the councils of the Republic. As a few northern congressmen warned, this meant that the entire nation was now more compelled than ever to defend slavery in Louisiana. But Congress agreed to take on the responsibility, and Louisiana became a state in 1812. This step, like all the measures taken and lessons learned, would be of crucial importance in the next few years. 
Violence in Saint-Domingue had won the Mississippi Valley for the United States and for the new dynamic form of slavery, whose expansion would in turn drive the nation's growth. Violence, marching down the road toward New Orleans, had been the climax of threats from within to the dreams of the new entrepreneurs of a transformed slavery. Violence from without was about to challenge enslavers and their allies once again. The militia stood amar up in the yard at the widow Charbonnet's place. Herded into an audience, the men, women, and children who knew him had to watch. The white men took aim and made Amar's body dance with a volley of lead. In his head, as he slumped and fell, were fifty billion neurons. They held the secrets of turning sugarcane sap into white crystals. They held the memories that made him smile at just such a joke. They held the cunning with which he sought out his lover's desires. They held the names of all the people who stood circled in silence. His cheek pressed on earth that his own feet had helped to pack, his mouth slackly coursing out blood as gunpowder smoke gathered in a cloud and blew east. A white officer's sideways boots strode toward him. The dancing electrons in Amar's brain caressed forty-five years of words, pictures, feelings, the village imam with his old book, his mother calling him from the door of a mud-brick house. The memory of a slave ship, or maybe more than one. The rumor of Saint-Domingue. All this was there, was him. But his cells were cascading into sudden death. One last involuntary wheeze, as a soldier raised an axe, sharpened by recent practice, and severed Amar's head from his body. Six weeks later, a merchant drifting down the river on a flatboat spied strange fruit growing. Along between Cantrell and the Red Church, I saw a number of Negro heads sticking on poles on the levee, he wrote. On the pike, Amar's face stared out over the water. The buzzards and the crows had already taken what they could. Slowly, as his jaw became unstrung, his mouth gaped. In terror of what would happen if they were caught taking him down, in fear of his unquiet spirit, his people left him up there, Perhaps some thought he had done wrong, that his choices, and those of dozens of others whose heads now stretched up and down the levee for fifty miles, had brought disaster upon themselves and their people. Perhaps others thought him a martyr, an avatar of revolution, of pride and resistance. Amar had done no more than answer the call that came to him, to choose when he had a choice. And half a century would pass before anyone like him would face such an opportunity to choose again. By that time, his skull had long since crumbled in the sun. Yet before they turned to dust, Amar's empty sockets may have gazed on another school of flatboats, which came down the river in the last weeks of 1814. The vessels were packed to the gunnels, not with the usual cargo of pork, tobacco, and corn, but with an army of white men from Tennessee, a force eight times as large as the one that had followed Commandeur to defeat. Already, on December 1, Andrew Jackson, commander of U.S. Army forces in the southwestern region, had ridden into New Orleans on the old Chef Monture Road that went out along the Gulf Coast toward Biloxi. He had come from Mobile in ten days of forced marches with 1,000 soldiers and a long string of victories trailing him. As he entered a city that stood again as the contested prize of impending mass violence, young boys, black and white, ran, shouting the news that General Jackson was here at last. In the Place d'Armes were Cesar, Daniel Garrett, 
and Jerry had all been hanged for participating in the 1811 insurrection, white New Orleans residents gathered again, this time called more by fear than by spectacle. After Claiborne, who had been reconfirmed as governor by the voters after Louisiana achieved statehood, said a few words, Jackson stepped forward, attended by the wily politician Edward Livingston, who stood ready to translate the general's remarks into the French still preferred by most of the people in the city. The blue uniform with its golden epaulets seemed to fit the tall man in ways beyond measurements and cut, but not because he was handsome. He was not. Jackson's hatchet face, the Creek Indians called him Sharp Knife, was topped with a shock of once red, now gray hair. He was tall for the time, at six foot one, but extremely thin, 140 pounds in the prime of his life, and less now. Jackson had spent the past 18 months on the warpath, and along the way he had contracted a terrible case of dysentery. Days still passed when he felt too sick to eat. Street fights and duels had left pistol balls embedded in his flesh. Pieces of his bullet-shattered humerus had worked themselves out through the wiry fibers of his bicep a few months earlier. Physically, Jackson was a wreck. But an incredible will to dominate, which Jackson channeled into a determination to defeat everyone whom he saw as an enemy, kept him standing straight as a spear. Not a shred of doubt floated in Jackson's eyes. In one anecdote from his time as a judge in Tennessee, a criminal had refused to come into the courtroom to face his charges, and then cowed a posse that Jackson sent out into the street after him. At last, Jackson stepped down from the bench and came out himself. He stared down the man, a giant of a village bully, who then meekly entered the courtroom. Why? the defendant was later asked. Because, he replied, when I looked him in the eyes, I saw shoot. Thomas Jefferson had known a younger Andrew Jackson during the latter's brief term as senator, and had noted that Jackson's passion controlled him. He could never speak on account of the rashness of his feelings. I have seen him attempt it repeatedly, and as often choke with rage. Some of Jackson's ferocity came from mysterious sources within. Some came from the rage generated in 1781, when a British sweep of backcountry South Carolina guerrilla strongholds ended in the capture of 14-year-old Andrew and his older brother Robert. Andrew was beaten with the flat of a cavalry saber for refusing to clean a British officer's boots like a slave, and Robert died in prison. But Andrew had survived, and he grew. Now he wielded his anger as a disciplined weapon. Jackson's habit of command was also reinforced by his ownership of dozens of enslaved African Americans on his labor camp outside of Nashville. Their toil had made Jackson's fortune and raised him to the prominence that won him election as the head of Tennessee's militia. He now bore a regular army commission and was the U.S. government's only hope for protecting the Gulf Coast against invasion in the third year of a war that had gone remarkably poorly. Jackson told the crowd gathered at the square that would one day bear his name that he would save the city. Rumors held that tens of thousands of British veterans were coming, and Lord Wellington, who had defeated Napoleon, was commanding them. The whites of New Orleans feared not only the massive British invasion army bearing down upon them from the sea, but also the disruptions and slave revolts that might come with becoming the seat of war. And they feared that the divisions between French, Spanish, and English speakers, sutured by business deals that brought in more slaves, and then by mutually suppressing slave rebels, might open like old wounds under the stress of invasion. 
But Jackson told them he would throw the enemy into the sea or die trying. A cheer went up. It was not only Jackson's unyielding assurance, nor his patriotic rhetoric that calmed his anxious audience. Since the War of 1812 had begun, victories had been unexpectedly few and far between. In 1812, after trying various strategies to push Britain into allowing American trade more freedom on the high seas, President James Madison had caved to pressure exerted by Republican congressmen and asked for a declaration of war. The most vehement congressmen were the so-called war hawks, mostly young representatives from western states. They believed that now, while Britain's fleets and armies were tied up in the struggle with Napoleon, was the time to finish dismembering the British Empire in North America by annexing Canada. As it turned out, Canadians did not want that. The Southern congressmen also imagined that war with Britain would permit them to seize additional territories from Spain. They had just annexed West Florida, the strip of land from Mobile to the Florida parishes of Louisiana. Now the rest of Florida was in their sights. By 1814, American nationalists had suffered many disappointments. The huge Royal Navy had bottled up the tiny American fleet in its ports. Canadians and British troops inflicted a series of stinging defeats on U.S. forces on the northern border. An attempted coup, later shined up with the name Patriots' War, led by English-speaking planters living on Spanish-ruled Florida's Atlantic coast, failed. Irritation at Westerners' dominance in the decision for war turned the northeastern states toward open undermining of war efforts. And in 1813, dozens of Creek villages in Georgia and Alabama rose against white settlers in a war called the Red Stick, after the emblem of war that militants carried from town to town. On August 20, 1,000 warriors broke into a huge frontier stockade called Fort Mims, where 700 white settlers and enslaved African Americans sheltered. In less than an hour, they slaughtered 250 men, women, and children. Only a few whites escaped, though the Creeks, the most powerful of whom owned African-descended slaves and cotton plantations, kept black prisoners alive. In Tennessee, Andrew Jackson reacted to the news of Fort Mims by gathering the state militia and marching them south into Alabama. The brutal campaign that followed displayed both Jackson's domineering personality and Southwestern whites' determination to do anything necessary to secure fertile soil for slavery's expansion. Jackson maneuvered to keep his command out of the control of political rivals back in Tennessee, shot deserters, and eventually pinned 2,000 creeks into a loop of the Tallapoosa River called Horseshoe Bend. On March 27, 1814, his troops breached the enemy's log walls and ran amok, killing 900 Creek warriors at a cost of only 70 of the attackers. Then Jackson called all Creek leaders, including the ones who had opposed the Red Sticks, to a meeting at Fort Jackson. There he bullied them into signing a treaty that conceded 23 million acres, 36,000 square miles, an area as large as Indiana. The friendly Creeks protested, but he had the army, the victory, and the power. They signed away over half of their lands in Alabama, much of it on the rich black soil of the central part of the territory. The land, already speculated upon several times as part of the vast Yazoo claim, could be surveyed and sold again, this time to actual white settlers. Jackson's victory at Horseshoe Bend was one of the two real American triumphs of the War of 1812. 
even though the fact that it was fought against Indians and deep in the southwestern interior means that many forget to think of it as part of that war. Measured by numbers killed, almost 1,000 between the two sides combined, it was the deadliest battle fought in the war. Horseshoe Bend's casualties do not compare, of course, to those generated by the massive armies that had for a quarter century fought in Europe, though it was among the 100 deadliest battles of the Napoleonic Wars. And considered by its outcome, it ranks among the most significant. The Treaty of Fort Jackson permanently handed far more land, and more valuable land, to the enslavers of the United States than all the blood and treasure poured out by France had won for her. The strong-arm robbery of the Creeks set the stage for millions of other profitable transactions that would ensue over the next half-century. White slave-owning settlers' military dominance over the southwestern Indians rendered inevitable the eventual loss of all their remaining land in Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi. What Jackson was in the process of doing now would be just as significant. Haiti's defeat of the invincible French army had opened the entire Mississippi Valley to an American expansion driven by the productive force of slavery. In the suppression of the 1811 revolt, slaveholders and the U.S. government had shown themselves willing to defend that opportunity ruthlessly. In the new environment of the now-open southwestern regions, slavery was changing, becoming something different from what it had been in the old states or the old Caribbean. But from the perspective of Britain, the Treaty of Saint-Ildefonso was illegitimate, and therefore so was the Louisiana Purchase. Napoleon had no right to sell a territory to which he had no title. Now, having raided the Chesapeake coast and burned Washington to the ground, British Admiral Sir Alexander Cochrane was on his way to the Gulf to seize New Orleans, return Greater Louisiana to Spain, and leave the United States caged behind the Mississippi. Already humiliated by his scampering retreat from the White House, President Madison desperately needed help if he was to prevent British forces from overturning his mentor's most significant achievement. Jackson was the man for the job. After imposing his treaty on the Creeks in August, he had pursued remaining red sticks into ostensibly neutral Spanish-held Florida. He seized Pensacola, sending British Marines and a flotilla of warships reeling backward. He also fortified Mobile, another target of British invasion plans. The British, meanwhile, shifted troops to a staging base at Jamaica. They believed Louisiana was low-hanging fruit, divided by ethnic conflicts and filled with slave owners who would surrender before risking a fight that could disrupt their property arrangements. When Jackson heard in late November that a massive invasion force was about to leave Jamaica, he sent word to units from Tennessee and Kentucky to descend down the Mississippi to New Orleans as quickly as possible. He had left Mobile on the 22nd. Now he was here. Over the next weeks, he would gather more troops, fortify the approaches to the city, and continue to stiffen the sometimes flagging resolve of the wealthier residents. But the British were coming. If you drive out from New Orleans's Vieux Carré, the French Quarter, Rampart Street turns into St. Claude Avenue as you enter the Marigny, or the old Faubourg that was literally outside of the city in Jackson's day. Once St. Claude passes over the canal, the neighborhood changes from white to black. You cross André and Deslandes, streets that, a few blocks north of here, run through a landscape once blown bare of houses by the explosive force of water. Keep going, though. 
There was already enough encoded in the street names of the Lower Ninth Ward to make you weep without thinking too of bare concrete pads and naked sidewalks. Soon the road becomes St. Bernard Highway, and in a single minute you are at the battlefield, and yet you are only five miles from the quarter. Today the swamps are filled in, but in the first days of 1815, the Chalmette property on which the Battle of New Orleans was fought was a narrow neck of 1,000 yards of sugarcane stubble that covered the gap between the almost impassable wetlands and the Mississippi. The invaders' fleet had balked at the attempt to get their troops up the winding and fortified river. Instead, the British Army landed almost in the rear of New Orleans, on Lake Bourne, and passed by canal and path through the woods over the course of December 22 and 23. Some 5,500 regulars under Edward Packenham, a 37-year-old veteran of the Napoleonic Wars, now stood almost within sight of New Orleans, five miles from the destruction of American Empire west of the Appalachians. Although Jackson could deploy 4,000-odd men in the bottleneck of Packenham's path to New Orleans, American militia had historically performed poorly in pitched battle against trained European regulars. Yet those units had not been commanded by Andrew Jackson. He shamed backbone into the city fathers of New Orleans, who, when the British Army arrived at their gates, begged him to retreat upriver from the city and declare it open so they would not be burned and looted for resisting. The majority of his troops came from Tennessee and Kentucky. There were also two battalions of free men of color from Lower Louisiana, one of which was composed of refugees from Saint-Domingue. Jackson warned them all that the enemy, who supposedly promised freedom to the hundreds of slaves who had escaped to their lines in the two weeks since they had arrived, avows a war of vengeance and desolation, proclaimed and marked by cruelty, lust, and horrors unknown to civilized nations. Only victory, he suggested, would prevent the unleashing of the fires of Saint-Domingue in the slave societies of the Mississippi Valley. Jackson had chosen his ground well, anchoring his lines in as good as a defensive position as one could find between the Appalachian and Rocky Mountains. As January 7 turned into January 8, he and his troops lay entrenched behind the ten-foot-wide Rodriguez Canal that separated the lands of Chalmette from those of Benjamin McCarty. At one in the morning, Jackson woke his aides. He could smell the attack. Four years to the day after the Commandeur had launched their attack on the most thickly planted center of enslavers' power, Pakenham's troops stirred and moved. Dawn revealed 4,000 men drawn up in menacing formation across Chalmette's long lot. Then, drums beating, cannon firing, the red line began to advance on Jackson's lines in perfect step, ominous and beautiful. They embodied the discipline that had ruled European battlefields for the past century. But as they came into range, splitting into two prongs to avoid a huge mire in the middle of Chalmette's field, Jackson's troops began to empty a carefully aimed storm of lead into the British ranks. Cannon fire ripped holes in the red formation. Pakenham himself, riding forward to see why his lines had shuddered and stalled, was hit multiple times. He bled to death by the edge of the swamp. By 8 a.m., it was all over. 2,000 British soldiers lay as casualties on the Chalmette Plain, of whom at least 300 were dead. The Americans lost a mere 13 killed. Still, Jackson wisely refused his subordinates' pleas for him to pursue the retreating British Army, which still held 2,000 trained men in reserve. Instead, he let the enemy pack their bags. 
on January 25, the invaders departed, taking with them almost 800 enslaved people who had, in effect, emancipated themselves. Although mighty armies disrupted slaveholder power more effectively than the slaves' revolt had, enslavers had won this round too. The loss of 800, for whom Britain would after many years consent to reimburse Louisiana enslavers, was not even a dent in the solidity of slavery at the mighty river's head. Within hours of the American triumph, meanwhile, a writer with news of this most significant of American victories between the Revolution and the Civil War whipped his horse into a gallop past Fort St. Charles, turned left just past where one last head has sat on a pike for so long, and headed up the Chef Mentir Road. Another went up the river road, past all the still-standing posts. It took weeks, until February 4, in fact, for news on horseback to reach the national capital. But when it did, a mighty flood of joy poured out. The elation was undiminished by the simultaneous arrival of the news, from Europe, that American negotiators had signed a peace treaty with Britain at the neutral city of Ghent on December 22, 1814, even as British troops disembarked from their ships at Lake Bourne. The terms of the treaty essentially returned everything to the starting position of 1812, giving captured territory back to its owner. Some have claimed that the treaty rendered Jackson's victory at New Orleans irrelevant, except for enshrining Jackson as a nationalist icon. But with the prize of the Louisiana Territory in their hands, the British would have been entitled, according to their own interpretations, to hold on to it or give it back to Spain. In fact, Article 9 of the Treaty of Ghent obligated the United States to return land taken from Britain's Indian allies, who included the Red Stick Creeks. Thanks to Jackson's victory, however, the United States was in no position to feel compelled to reverse the Treaty of Fort Jackson and remand 36,000 square miles to Creek custody. So, the Battle of New Orleans protected the windfall the United States had caught when the sacrifices of the Haitian Revolution shook the Tree of Empire, and it confirmed Jackson's great land grab from the Creeks as well. Slavery's expansion could now proceed unchecked. The man in the iron collar had come to slavery's new frontier, a place created by violence. Revolution in Saint-Domingue overthrew the old pattern of early modern slavery, which had driven one kind of economic development in the Atlantic world. Haiti's revolutionaries had offered the world a radically new concept of human rights, the right of all to become equal citizens. But this vision did not become reality, either in independent Haiti or elsewhere. Indeed, the death of the old slavery cleared room for something quite different, a new second slavery. Constructed first in the southwestern United States, this modern and modernizing process brought benefits and rights to ever wider groups of people, while stripping them with great violence ever more radically from others. At the Mississippi's mouth, brutal force defended this infant process from the efforts of the enslaved to block it, marking the ramparts of its cradle with the severed heads of rebels. Next, Jackson completed American possession of the southwestern frontier with victories that opened thousands of square miles. Now a continental empire was possible, one that had vast resources within its reach. But to create vast and sweeping dominions out of the chaos that their own violence amplified, the victors would need many things. Credit, land, markets, crops, authority, and hands. Above all, hands. Hands to write, to buy, to reach, to grasp, 
to plant, and to harvest. 3. Right Hand, 1815-1819 From the deck of the Brig Temperance to the grass-clotted soil of the New Orleans levee stretched a long, narrow plank. It bent under the weight of the four men as they filed across it, bent under Rachel's, too, as she followed. Throughout the morning of January 28, 1819, one white man after another had boarded, talked with Captain Beard, and walked back down the gangplank. One had taken a couple of the brig's twenty-four enslaved passengers. Rachel, standing by the deck rail in her new clothes, had watched them disappear between the huge piles of cotton bales on the levee. The opposite deck rail had showed her the river. Hundreds of masts were in sight, seagoing brigs and barks and sloops and schooners moored along the levee like the temperance. River flatboats by the hundred were here to unload their Ohio corn and hogs, Mississippi cotton, and Kentucky tobacco. She could see the stacks of a dozen steamboats, and working its way across the muscular brown chop of the Mississippi had come one little rowboat. A slight, black-suited white man sat upright in the stern, and a black man worked the oars. Now, at the end of the plank, Rachel put her feet on Louisiana. On unsteady legs, she climbed the levee to the southwest. She'd been six weeks on the water since the temperance had left Baltimore. That was where merchant David Anderson had purchased her for consignment to his New Orleans partner, Hector McLean. Anderson had also bought William, tall, dark, age 24, George, Ellis, and Ned Williams. Rachel now followed them up the slope. Her head rose over the top of the levee. As she reached out to balance herself, her hand found a bare post driven into the dirt, one in a long series stretching upriver, each one separated from the next by a mile or so. Nailed to it was, perhaps, a placard. Its words were everywhere in New Orleans, tacked to walls and posts, printed in directories and newspapers. At Mosperot's Coffee House, Peter Mosperot, auctioneer, informs his friends and the public that he continues to sell all kinds of merchandise, real estate, and slaves in Charter Street, and at the bottom, Looking Glass and Gilding Manufactory, P. Mosperot. From the levee, Rachel could see a city in the midst of full-tilt growth. Populated by 7,000 people at the time of American acquisition in 1803, New Orleans now claimed 40,000. Already, this was the fourth-largest city in the United States, behind New York, Philadelphia, and Baltimore. In commercial dynamism, Jefferson's one spot on Earth was equaled only by New York. From every quarter, hammers pounded on the ear, nailing timbers of broken-up flatboats together into storefronts. To the east, downriver of the Temperance's mooring point at the French Quarter, stretched the Marigny district, a mostly French-speaking faubourg or suburb. To the west spread the rapidly growing American Quarter, or Faubourg St. Mary. As Rachel followed the others down the levee's other slope, they passed a chain gang, galley slaves, New Orleans residents called them, slaves who for the crime of running away were locked in the dungeons behind the cabildo at night and brought out to build up the levee by day. The city government could punish resistance while simultaneously using rebellious slaves' labor to protect the city from the giant river that crested each spring. At the bottom of the levee, parallel to it, ran a dirt avenue, Levee Street. 
and as they stepped onto it, the five entered a city whose vortex had been sucking at their feet ever since Maryland. Here, women of every shade called out in French, English, Spanish, and Choctaw, selling food and trinkets. But beneath the patter was another hum, that of bigger business, and it was booming. On corners, under the awnings of new brick buildings, white men gathered, talking, heads turned, appraising. Before the War of 1812, enslaved people from other U.S. states had been relatively scarce in New Orleans. But from 1815 to 1819, of those sold, about one-third were new arrivals from the Southeast, Virginia, Maryland, North Carolina. Another 20% came down the river from Kentucky. A few hundred came from northern states, such as New Jersey and Pennsylvania, slipped out in contravention of gradual emancipation laws that contained provisions designed to keep masters from liquidating in a going-out-of-business sale. One turn left, and they headed up a muddy street. In the middle, a ziggurat of cotton bales, taller than the men who muscled them up, too wide for carts to pass. It being January, the crop was coming down at full tide on flat boats and steamers. Even as the employers of cotton dealers piled bales high, teamsters hired by cotton buyers chipped them back down, pulling bales out, checking letters branded on cotton wrapping, hauling the 400-pound cubes of compressed fiber toward the river. If Rachel could have followed the bale, she'd have seen it loaded from the levee onto ocean-going vessels. These would carry the bales across the Atlantic to Liverpool on England's northwestern coast, where dock workers moved the bales to warehouses. After sale on the Liverpool cotton market, they went by canal barge to Manchester's new mills. Textile workers, often former operators of hand-powered looms or displaced farm workers, opened the bales. Using new machines, they spun the cleaned cotton fibers into thread. Using other machines, they wove the thread into long pieces of cloth. Liverpool shipped the bolts of finished cloth, and they found their way into almost every city or town in the known world, including this one. Cotton cloth was why New Orleans was booming, why the world was changing. White entrepreneurs here, like the customers in the shops Rachel was passing, the men on the corners, the sellers and buyers on the ships along the levee, were participating in, even driving, this worldwide historical change. Building on the government-sponsored processes of migration and market-making taking place in Georgia, and the battles fought by the slaveholders' military to open up the Mississippi Valley, after 1815, a new set of entrepreneurs had begun to use Rachel and all the others brought here against their wills to create an unprecedented boom. It linked technological revolutions in distant textile factories to technological revolutions in cotton fields, and it did so by combining the new opportunities with the financial tools needed to make economic growth happen more quickly than ever before. This boom was changing the world's future, and these entrepreneurs who used Rachel were establishing themselves and their kind as one of the most powerful groups in the modernizing Western world that cotton was making. Before the late 18th century, all society's economies were pre-industrial. Almost all of their inhabitants were farmers or farm laborers. Whether European, Asian, American, or African, such economies rarely grew by as much as 1% per year. So it has been since women and men had invented agriculture 10 millennia earlier. Most of what people made fell into few categories, food, fuel, and fiber. 
the pace of innovation was glacial. And when pre-industrial societies did begin to grow, whether through technological advances, increases in access to resources through conquest or trade, or changes in weather conditions, such as the warming that took place in Europe between 800 and 1300 AD, the increasing prosperity led people to have more babies. Babies grew into more farmers who could grow more food and more purchasers who would buy their products. But the increasing number of mouths to feed began to exceed the maximum output possible under pre-industrial methods of agricultural production. The easily accessible firewood was being burned up, and the acres needed for raising the flax or wool to clothe the increasing population was being turned over to marginal subsistence agriculture. Costs rose. Living standards dropped. Famine, epidemic disease, war, political instability, and full-scale social collapse were next. English clergyman Thomas Malthus wrote about this cycle in a famous 1798 pamphlet. Food production, he argued, could increase arithmetically at best, while population could expand geometrically. Thus, no increase in the standard of living was sustainable. It would always run up against resource limits. Western societies acquired massive new resources between 1500 and 1800. Conquistadors stripped the Incas and Aztecs of their gold and silver. The creation of the first slavery complex with its drug foods, sugar, tobacco, tea, coffee, and chocolate, stimulated Western Europe's desire to seek out and consume still more resources. The massive Atlantic slave trade required ships, trade commodities, and new structures of credit, and growth spilled over into sectors less directly linked to sugar. Many in Western Europe began to work longer hours in order to get new commodities in what is sometimes called an 18th century industrious revolution. Yet, neither the first slavery, extended hours of labor, or the theft of resources could permanently relieve Malthusian pressures. Even Thomas Jefferson, who hoped that the Louisiana Purchase would delay the collapse of his yeoman paradise for a hundred generations, knew that such solutions eventually ran out of arithmetic. Malthus and Jefferson's pessimistic reading of human history from 10,000 B.C. until 1800 was the realistic one. But even as Rachel climbed the levee, the ground was shifting. The global economy was launching an unexpected and unprecedented process of growth that has continued to the present day. The world's per capita income over the past 3,000 years shows that a handful of societies, beginning with Great Britain, were shifting onto a path of sustained economic expansion that would produce higher standards of living and vastly increased wealth for some, and poverty for others. The new trajectory created winners and losers among the different societies of the world. Until the late 20th century, we could simply state these with a catchy phrase, the West and the rest. People have called this incredible shift in human history by a variety of names, modernization, the Industrial Revolution, the Great Divergence. In those societies that it benefited the most, this transformation built fundamentally upon one key shift. Increasing the amount of goods, such as food or clothing, produced from a given quantity of labor and land. This is what allowed the standard of living not only to keep up with a growing population, but for many, also to improve. By 1819, it was dramatically evident that mechanical innovations and a new division of labor could result in increased production of goods at lower cost in labor and resources than ever before. And exhibit number one 
was Northwestern England's cotton textile industry. Until late in the 18th century, cotton fabric had been a luxury good woven on hand looms in Indian villages. But by 1790, British inventors had begun to create new machines that spun cotton into thread at a rate that human hands could not approach. The machines were less expensive to acquire and operate than the human hands, too. Within seven decades, Manchester factory workers running the new machines could make cloth five or ten times faster than laborers alone working by hand. A new class of factory-owning entrepreneurs emerged. They extracted massive profits from textile manufacturing. But textile revenues also boosted and transformed the entire British economy. Wealthy landowners borrowed cotton-generated investment capital and commercialized agriculture. Surplus rural laborers, pushed into factory towns, became wage-earning factory workers. The evidence of transformation surrounded the white customers Rachel saw in the stores. Imagine one of them, his fingers checking out one bolt of cloth after another, sensing its weight, its texture, the elaborate variety pumped out by Manchester mills and promoted in newspaper ads. Superfine broadcloths, white flannels, cambric and jacquinet muslins. Lower in quality were ready-made and standard-sized negro shirts, pieced together from cotton negro cloth. Piled on bales of slaves' blankets were iron pots and casks of trace chains for hitching mules to plows. Stacked up on counters were saws, log chains, balance beams called steel yards for weighing cotton. Piled in corners were West India and Carolina hoes for sugarcane and cotton, respectively. These non-textile goods were mostly made in British workshops. Designed for the new markets of plantations and growing cities, they were what economists call knock-on effects, pushed by the pistons of the cotton textile engine. On the shelves were breakables meant for consumption and not production. Hundreds of packages of earthenware, chiefly blueprinted, perhaps made by Wedgwood, the first large-scale British maker of China. First-rate gold watches, dozens of cases of guns, two cases looking glasses, putting Moss Perot out of one business, elegant pianos, decanters of crystal and cut glass. In enclaves like this store, this city, this network of enclaves that stretched to New York and Liverpool and London and so on, men like this man were changing their worldviews. Increasingly, they anticipated that progress would carry them and their society ever upward and onward to positions of unprecedented power. And for the next 80 years, they would use industrial power and technology to subdue the rest of the world. By the end of the 19th century, only half a dozen independent non-Western nations would survive on the globe as colonialism expanded. Even nature surrendered, as William N. Mercer, a physician who traveled to New Orleans in 1816, predicted. Steamboat navigation would conquer the Western country, taming the immense distances and deep and impetuous currents of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. All right. Context of white supremacy. Uh, that is the first audio segment. Super unpleasant uh, experience today. Uh, coincides nicely with the uh, holiday, so I have been told. Uh, so that's the first audio segment. Again, we had uh, a lot of uh, tech issues for the folks who are listening live. Uh, my apologies. Uh, it was way beyond my control as the uh, Internet 
uh, totally died. Uh, and it actually was compounded, but I won't even get into all that right now. Uh, a lot of tech issues that were beyond my control for the duration of the day. I guess everybody was, was being uh, lazy and incompetent because of having the day off and chilling until 2016. Uh, with that, uh, if folks uh, who were patient and hanging out, uh, if you were able to uh, follow along with the uh, disruptions to the audio, uh, feel free to chime in. The number to dial is 641 715 Four zero, and the code is five six four nine four three pound. Uh, press star six if you would like to participate. Number again six four one seven one five three six four zero, and the code is five six four nine four three. Pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Uh, if you uh, want to use the free vote line, it should be linked at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, feel free to chime in there as well, and we will get your hand and uh, get you on the line. Uh, it's a bit of a bummer because I was enjoying the first audio segment. I was glad to pick right back up where we left off last week with the uh, slave revolt to hear how all that evolved and then to have all of the disruptions but that is pretty typical under the system of racism, white supremacy you can expect uh, lots and lots and lots of obstacles uh, in your quest to counter racism that's it, uh, let's see uh, Thomas in New York, hanging in appreciate the patience, if you have any comments that you uh, want to make sure you share feel free, line should be open Uh, Thomas in New York, are you with us, sir? Yes, sir. Good evening, Gus. Good evening to all. Happy um, baby white Jesus birthday to all. Um, I just wanted to say, man, this was a great segment. Kind of a little choppy. White people interference. No need for you to apologize, Gus. Um, you know, everyone else got a day off, so I guess they pissed they got to work the Internet. So they said, let's mess with these people doing counter-racist work. Um, man, I think that was a, a under statement by the about that revolt. Only two white people died or two slave masters died. I think that they completely um you know, sort of you know, made it seem like it wasn't that big of a deal to um you know, to discourage us from ever trying to rebel again, of course. They wanted to emphasize, of course, that they burnt the man, how how brutally they killed him. So, you know, I guess that was to, to put that fear in everyone's head. Um um, I, I was very intrigued by the, the the second part when they was talking about all um, the cotton and all the you know the the advancements in the technology, and um, you know the the start of the um, industrial revolution and all of that. So, you know, I'm just learning a lot. Uh, I'm still a little lost with the history. It's it's a little different than how I would interpret it, but um, I'm learning a lot, and I'll mute my line from now. I look forward to hearing what other people have to say. Right on, right on. Appreciate that. Uh, for the folks listening to the archive, it should be uh, pristine, so you will not have uh, any of the difficulties we had to endure for the folks on the live end. Uh, Raj should be with us as well. If you have any comments, feel free. Your line should be open also. All right, good to see you, Gus. Um, can you hear me? Yes, sir. 
All right, good to you, Gus, and um, to Thomas, and to all the other callers and listeners. Um, yes, this is a very fascinating section. I'm really annoyed that the uh, racists have uh, interrupted it, but I'm glad that we're back on board. Um, there was a couple of things I wanted to speak, speak on. The first one was a part that was on page 63. It said, uh, they too were to be executed just like the silent ones. Death was to come by firing squad. Each convicted rebel was to be taken to his respective home plantation to be executed in front of all of the gathered slaves. Over the next day or so, the militia carried out the sentences, shooting the condemned and decapitating their corpses while silent crowds watched. This section really brought me to something that Thomas just said, too, and it made me think about um, the video deaths of unarmed black men, women, and children that are being recorded, and it basically serves the same purpose, but on a grand, massive, international, global plantation scale. And um, it really speaks to what you uh, talk about. You've talked about quite a bit before as far as this, uh, the, the videos being the new form of uh, postcard, lynching postcard. And it's just like, just like we've always talked about, it's a global plantation. And now with the advent of more technology, um, they're able to spread this, this terror, uh, psychological terror and terrorism amongst black people worldwide. Um, and it's, it, it's gave me, it just gave me a lot of pause for thought when I saw that section. There was another area on page 64 that said the second, oh, the second, I'm talking about the second form of slavery that came after initial uh, chattel slavery. It said the second was a federal government dominated by enslavers that was committed to putting down slave collective resistance. Federal troops were the key to suppressing the 1811 revolt. The government protected enslavers' enterprises, and they in turn extended the power of the American state by occupying and developing territory. And it, it kind of just brings to mind, again, uh, white people forming like Voltron, and it also brings into question on um, the creation of the military, because we all know that the police were basically um, extension of the patty rollers or slave catchers. And to me, the military is just an, an extended, more organized and refined version of that. And it was obvious to white people that they had uh, basically prisoners of war that they had enslaved and, and were brutalizing. So they understood that to suppress any revolts by these, these suppressed groups, they had to involve the military as well as the, the actual uh, citizenry. So this kind of shows how the military works in collective with the white collective uh, military, which is really white people, a racist man, racist woman, and racist child, basically collectively shut down or attempt to shut down any uh, forms of revolution by black people and non-white people in general. And then there was an area that was on page 65. Um, it said, along, along, excuse me, along between Cantrell and the Red Church, I saw a number of Negro heads sticking on poles on the levee. He wrote, on the pike, a marsh face stared out over the water. Buzzards and the crows had already taken what they could. Slowly, his jaw became unstrung and his mouth gaped. In terror of what would happen if they were caught taking him down, in fear of his unquiet spirit, people left him up there, perhaps. Some thought he had done wrong, that his choices and those of dozens of others whose heads now stretched up and down the levee for 50 miles had brought disaster upon themselves and their people. Perhaps others thought from the martyr and avatar of revolution of pride and of resistance. And um, this was just, just, again, the ongoing psychological terrorism of American African people in this country. And it's really just kind of 
brought to me the whole idea of psychological conditioning through terror and how that breed, bred then, well, bred then the terror that they, that they wanted, but now it kind of breeds an indifference to black death amongst black people. So I think like the intergenerational result of things like leaving black people's heads on stakes to be devoured by a wild animal or the uh, collective killing of black revolutionaries trying to fight for their freedom. This is now uh, going on for so long that we are now indifferent to the death of our own people. And I think that was the, the actual uh, planned result of this sort of behavior by white people. And um, also, there was a last section, actually in the very last area we read, page 81, that said, for the next 80 years, they would use industrial power and technology to subdue the rest of the world. By the end of the 19th century, only half a dozen independent, non-Western nations would survive on the globe as colonialism expanded. This right here was extremely important to me, simply because it really shows the vampiric culture that is white supremacy because it's basically talking about the transition of the guard in which they're not only stealing slaves and, and, and basically um, performing all types of theft around the world, taking resources and, and gold and, and all kinds of other um, uh, foundational items to create what became the Industrial Revolution, but it also shows that as these vampires were taking these things, they were destroying entire people, um, languages, cultures all along the way, and by the time the Industrial Revolution excuse me, for white people started, that literally only six independent non-Western nations would survive on the globe as a result. So this really shows that they are the original vampire. All of the vampire movies that they make have everything to do with the actual collective psychology, the affinity of white, white people. And um, we have a lot of work to do to combat the, 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 the uh, global uh, expansion and continuation and refinement of uh, racism and white supremacy. Thank you very much, and I'll meet my life. Right on, right on. Uh, for other folks uh, who are able to endure with all of the disturbances, uh, if you have any comments you want to get in before we do the second audio clip, uh, don't dally, go ahead and get your hand up, and we'll get you in as well. Uh, some of the things that uh, stood out, I saw, I still get updates from the White Privilege Conference and uh, Dr. Eddie Moore Jr., that would be a cowbell. Um, and I looked at it today, and I just remember all the rhetoric and things that they talk, and, you know, it's not about hating white people, and we want to work together, and, you know, we, we don't want to be talking all this as though we're angry and hateful. And hearing the response to the attempted slave uprising uh, in Louisiana, 1811, and chopping off of black people's heads and just, I mean, maximum torture. Like, wait a minute, what, what, what can we do before this nigga bleeds to death? We've already chopped off, uh, you know, body parts and fingers. And what, what can we do before he dies? What can we do to make him suffer, you know, for at least a few more seconds before, you know, his death? Uh, that sort of thing, I think, gets greatly minimized uh whites they don't teach this sort of thing in school i know i've never heard about you know this stuff uh when i was in school uh k through 12 even i think a lot of folks at the collegiate level just don't get this type of information i think uh the more of this that we had i think it would radically alter uh, same thing that i said before when thomas asked about if we pass this information down from one generation to the next if we talked about racism honestly and all the things that whites have done i just i think it would have a radical 
impact. Uh, even the conversations you hear about forgiveness. Uh, Wade Hampton, he, he has statues right now when they were having all those conversations this summer about taking down the Confederate flag and this, that, and the other. Uh, and I was saying, I mean, there's so many monuments to white supremacists, I don't even know where you would begin. Uh, they're in New Orleans right now. They, I think, just decided that they were going to take down some of the Confederate monuments or what have you. I don't think they changed Jackson Square. Uh, and I know Wade Hampton, he has monuments uh, in South Carolina, probably other spots uh, throughout the country right now. These are people that enforced, supported, uh, but trust the system of white supremacy and terrorism against black people. Um, the portion where it talked about uh, all of the different black people that convened where it said these were black people from the Congo, black people that were born in Louisiana, Kentucky, Virginia, the Niger Delta, and them all organizing, that sort of thing, uh, non-white people, and I mean it can be any collection of non-white people, when they look like they are trying to get together and work against a common enemy, whites, oh man, like anything is authorized at that point, like we have got to do all that we possibly can to keep that sort of thing down, crush it immediately. Uh, and that, that's exactly what we heard in the response to the revolt in 1811. I thought it was great, the passage. Uh, for me, this is on 164, where it says, uh, by afternoon, most of the whites of the German coast had either fled or were fleeing when one stubborn enslaver, Jean-Francois Trepanier, uh, Itene's relatives stayed put. One of his own house slaves, a young man named Cook, chopped off his head with an axe. Uh, I thought that was <laughs> incredible and significant for many reasons because I think a lot of times in our frustration and responding to white terrorism, we get frustrated with other non-white people that, you know, we perceive they're in a better position, that whites don't treat them as badly or they are, quote unquote, helping, supporting the system of white supremacy. And we have all kinds of creative terms for these type of people. They are still victims that even they, even they have the capacity to change and make correct decisions um just hearing even in the text just hearing uh black people our aim is to kill white people and as many as we can uh, that is uh, it's it's just such a radical shift from the way that racism is normally talked about and the type of material that's presented uh in most books i i, I just that alone i think makes it uh important reading uh i think thomas's point was really important about them asserting that it was only two whites that died uh, in this revolt. There is a pattern of whites doing that where within the system of white supremacy, where black people or any non-white people, where they have any sort of counter violence, counter terrorism offensive uh, that involves killing whites, where they minimize the number of whites that were killed. I know the first thing I thought of was uh, midnight in Flames After Midnight. Uh, we had the author on the program back in 2011. Uh, but this is something that happened in the 20th century in Texas where whites were on a rampage. Same thing. Whites were on a rampage, killing black people, leaving the bodies out to further terrorize and psychologically scar the people. And what stopped it was black self-respect. Black people got guns, defended themselves, killed some white people, but they lied about it in the press and they didn't want to say that black people actually had killed white. So I definitely think that it's uh, probably very likely that these, I mean, if they're saying that it was hundreds of black people that were out and that was their aim to go kill white people, uh, I would think it seems pretty likely to me that uh, there were more white casualties than what have been reported. Um, the whole part about how this 
galvanized whites, at least for me, that's been one of the main themes of the book thus far, how whites coalesce around terrorizing black people. Uh, I think that was even part of the fear that while whites are bickering on a global level uh, where you have uh, the British and the French and Spaniards and all these different collections of white people who are arguing and fighting with each other, trying to dominate and out out supremacy one another, that, you know, we might mess around and allow our niggers to run amok on us while we're fighting each other. Um, that theme of we cannot allow that to happen. We got to make sure that we're on the same page about making sure we keep our foot on these niggers necks. He has said that I think it's been in every section of the book that we've read thus far where that ends up being a really strong point. Uh, him emphasizing how this pushed the federal government to be unified about, hey, we are in support of slavery. We will have federal troops come down here to make sure that this doesn't happen. We will have increased vigilance, even the passage uh, where it talks about their refinement, uh, I thought was incredible. Where it talks about after this, oh, we are not going to do the same thing anymore. We're going to have increased surveillance, stop and frisk to make sure that they're not plotting or scheming or doing things that we don't know about. We're going to have increased patrols, just all the resources and attention that whites put in. Again, white people are not ignorant about racism. This would go for 19th century all the way 2016 to infinity. As long as you have a system of terrorism and domination, the people that are doing the mistreatment, whites, they cannot just be sitting around not paying attention to their niggers. That cannot work. You cannot dominate an entire planet and not refine as you go, learn from your errors, keep as much information as possible. You've got to be more informed about this than the people that you're dominating. Uh, and that's one thing that I hope, as I said, that is a, a massive part of the problem. People thinking that whites have done all this and they're just ignorant and stupid. I'm glad he pointed that out specifically on uh, the book and talking about the myth, uh, the mythology of slave enslavers being ignorant. He says right here, by reputation, slaveholders were stubborn, stubborn traditionalists who forgot nothing and learned nothing. In reality, they continue to learn and adapt to promote their own interests. Uh, but after the 1811 revolt, they increased their regulation and surveillance of the slave population, taking them to new heights. And I submit that the same thing is happening right now. That is a key aspect of how this system uh, is maintained. Uh, let me make sure I didn't miss uh, some other important points. I was going to ask before we got to the end of chapter two why this chapter was named Heads, but I think that's self-explanatory now. <laughs> I don't. Uh, I don't think I need to ask that at this point. Um, at, someone did raise that on the compensatory calling in terms of the focus on black bodies and the significance i would i would again say that it's early we have not even read a third of this book yet but the portion i think we've read a significant enough chunk at least for me to say that i would say it's constructive the way it's done in this book and focusing specifically on each individual body part and how that is attacked under their system i think it is very constructive using that as a metaphor to think of the total war the total terrorism uh, against black people and and the the totality of the black body uh, let's see. Let's see. I thought. 
I thought it was good that the uh, the white author Baptiste that he brought out that you know some of this stuff could be lies. Who knows what's what's accurate uh, in terms of the white recorders who documented uh, what happened in this revolt and even other aspects of uh, what we're reading uh, that you know this could be lies. Who knows uh, what's accurate to kind of keep those questions uh, in mind. Uh, I think we saw some of the same dynamics that we said uh, see today in terms of snitching. Uh, once whites uh, have you in greater confinement, have you in uh, have you in custody, they have all sorts of means to extract information to get you to snitch on uh, other black people to try to save uh, yourself. I even thought the metaphor of save your skin because I think that was employed a few times as uh, we've read through the text as well. Um, let's see. The portion where he said free people of color in the United States were always a tiny minority who sided with the white majority during crisis in contrast to Saint-Domingue where many had joined the rebellion. That was one where I just had a question if folks thought that that was true or not. Not that, you know, the minority, there were a small number of quote unquote free black people uh, who were not in the greater confinement of of plantation slavery in that era. Uh, But them siding with whites, uh, I was just... I had a question mark if that was true or not. I don't, that's not one that I can off top cite a lot of information and resources and document and what have you to see if that's true. But I just had a question as to whether or not that was true. Uh, particularly since I think even he said during the new Orleans slave revolt that there was a question or, or people had raised the possibility if, uh, some of the blacks that were in the city that they might have tried to go to where the army was to get weapons to aid in this revolt to me at least that suggests that maybe these black people might not be sympathetic with whites um i don't know the people that are that are with us did you all have a thought on that uh whether the the black people that were not enslaved at this time which i guess 19th century black people that were not enslaved do you think that from what you've seen what you've read that they tend to side with whites at time of crisis uh or or do we think that that's not accurate I don't think that it's accurate because from what I've seen and what I've found in my studies historically, there there weren't many large groups of people that aligned themselves with whites. They were individuals, whether they were people, you know, house, so-called house Negroes or people who were close to the slave master in some form or fashion and getting gaining favor from them. But these weren't overwhelming bunches because white people had no love for black people. So I really couldn't see any collective of free blacks aligning themselves with white people against their own kind. Um, and I'm pretty sure those free blacks understood how tenuous their freedom was simply because of white people's um, habit of kidnapping free blacks and enslaving them in other parts of the country. So I really don't, I agree with you. I don't um, believe that that particular statement is accurate. And I've never seen large collectives of black people align themselves with whites unless it was something in which, like, um, when the British were fighting the United States, you had slaves that were promised freedom by the British if they aligned themselves with them, in those situations, then, yes, large collectives of black people um, would align themselves with the British, hoping to free themselves from from, uh, slavery in the Americas. But outside of those sorts of scenarios, no. So I agree with you. I don't don't believe that's accurate. Hmm. I have to uh, to check. I totally... uh, Go ahead, go ahead. ahead. uh, I totally think it's accurate. And uh, as for my studies which is why I say a lot of this history doesn't fit. That was the case in large parts. There was a, a, a huge amount of free black people at this time, and they benefited from 
the same system, you know, not the, the, the system's not white supremacy yet, like how it's built today. The system is, you know, slavery, you know, getting paid. And totally agree with that system. Um, and that, that's what I've got in my study. And you could refer to a book called Confederate Cherokee to, to kind of read that on. I have to uh, do some, do some, I know white people, they weren't even down with having quote unquote free black people in this area of the world. I think he's even cited that in this text that they didn't even want them, uh, particularly uh, quote unquote free black males. They didn't even want them uh, in the Louisiana territory. We covered that in last week's section. I think Virginia is another one. They didn't, they didn't want them there uh, in quite a few territories. It was like, man, you gotta, you gotta roll. Uh, you can't be around here. We want to make sure we have all that niggers uh, that, you know, we already know that they enslaved. We don't even want too many of you all uh, around here. And uh, as Raz cited that you could be sto- 12 years a slave. You could be stolen. Uh, as a black person, even if you were, quote unquote, free. Uh, and I think it's also documented there were a good number of black people that were, quote unquote, free who aided uh, black people who uh, what they call runaway slaves uh, who helped them uh, as best they could to try to get away and, you know, get resources, get to some place where they could be a bit uh, safer. But that's definitely when I have to have to ponder on if folks want to write in on that and share their view. That's cool, too. Um, Andrew Jackson, $20 bill, uh, no surprise, uh, lots of his heroics in support of the system of uh, white terrorism. Um, I thought it was significant as well, the New Orleans levy uh, being built by black slaves. I said, uh, going all the way back when we were reading Gary Rivlin and all the stuff we did on Hurricane Katrina, um, the use of black people in constructing levees in New Orleans, I think that's huge. So, yeah, yeah, that was really good tonight. Yeah. I had a little Sorry about that. The use of black uh black labor labor in constructing the levees in New Orleans and I think specifically the black people that they were talking about in the book section this week they were building the levee on the Mississippi River. That levee did not fail during Hurricane Katrina. Uh it was the levee for uh Lake Pontchartrain uh that failed and even I think some of the levees around Lake Bourne but not the Mississippi River uh levee that one stayed intact. Um is there anything else I want to make sure I get in before we get to second audio segment. Um Let's see. Yeah, the new chapter uh, talking about the growth and importance of New Orleans. I will save my comments there until after the second audio segment concludes. Uh, anybody else have anything they wanted to get in quickly before we get to audio segment two? Uh, yes, hello? Yes, sir. Can I be here? Yes, sir. Okay. Yes, I did have something. Um, you bringing up the the um, the consistent theme of white people coalescing around the suppression of black people really kind of brought home to me maybe the author's purpose for writing the book is to help reinforce that concept and that idea because that's exactly what white people are rallying around right now. Um, so I'm really thinking and wondering is that the underlying sub- subtle purpose to him writing this book is to basically reinforce this historical narrative of, you know, we have to keep our foot on the necks of black people at all times, and this book is a way of reinforcing that ideology amongst white people who read the book. But that's just something that came to me after you brought that up. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
something to keep in mind. I guess just to see how frequently that pops up, at least uh, to my notes, that has been a major theme in each of the weeks uh, reading that we've done thus far. We're only three weeks in, but it's been there every week thus far. We'll see if that pattern uh, holds up as we continue through the book. Um, with that, uh, we'll go ahead and get to the second audio segment. Uh, if you have any comments that you didn't get in uh, for the first audio segment, just make a note and we should have time to get them in after uh, this segment concludes. Uh, hopefully we won't have any audio issues. Uh, we'll have a clean segment and then uh, folks can share their thoughts. Uh, context of white supremacy, we are in chapter three, very early in uh, chapter three. Uh, I think this is right hand. Make sure I have the correct hand. Uh, yeah, this is right, right hand. Edward Baptist, the half has never been told. Context of white supremacy. Steady improvement in machine technology became a popular metaphor. It depicted change as unending progress. Change in which machines extracted power from nature and yielded it to human beings. But the move from arithmetical to geometric economic growth wasn't only caused by the greater efficiency of British machines. All the new efficiencies, all the accelerating curves of growth, would have been short-circuited if embryo industries had run out of cotton fiber. And that nearly happened. Before 1800, most of the fiber came from small-scale production in India, from the Caribbean, and from Brazil. The price of raw cotton was high, and it was likely to rise higher still because the land and labor forces available for producing cotton were limited and their productivity was low. High raw material costs constrained the expansion of the British textile industry. The North American interior, on the other hand, had thousands of acres of possible cotton fields, thousands for each one in the Caribbean. And the invention of the cotton gin in the early 1790s helped to uncork one of the bottlenecks to production, by allowing the easy separation of cotton fiber from seeds. But even with the dramatic increase in the amount of cotton produced in South Carolina and Georgia that followed, and even with the growing labor force supplied by coffle chains and marching feet, southeastern enslavers still were not close to meeting the world market's growing demand for raw cotton. In hindsight, we see that the greater Mississippi Valley was the obvious answer. Yet the Mississippian who wrote that New Orleans would be the port of exit for the redundant produce of the upper country, its sugar, tobacco, cotton, hemp, was typical before 1815 in thinking that cotton came in third. He imagined that Louisiana's main function would be to replace Saint-Domingue in the world circuit of sucrose. Before 1815, New Orleans lagged well behind Charleston as North America's main cotton port. On May 19, 1815, Four months after Jackson's victory, New Orleans cotton entrepreneur William Kenner reported that upwards of 30 vessels were in the river on the way to the city because Europe must and will have cotton for her manufacturers. His Liverpool cotton brokers predicted that cotton prices will not decline. Before 1815 was half over, 65,000 cotton bales, made on slave labor camps in the woods along the Mississippi and its tributaries, arrived in New Orleans by flatboat. This was 25% of the total produced by the entire United States and the land and dominion that southwestern slaveholders won in battles against the enslaved, against Native Americans, and against the British prepared them to launch even greater expansions in raw cotton production. In fact, the cotton supply was about to increase even more rapidly. By the time four more years had passed, 
and Rachel arrived in New Orleans, 60,000 more enslaved people had been shifted into Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama from the older South. By 1819, the rapid expansion of Mississippi Valley slave labor camps had enabled the United States to seize control of the world export market for cotton, the most crucial of early industrial commodities. And cotton became the dominant driver of U.S. economic growth. In 1802, cotton already accounted for 14% of the value of all U.S. exports. But by 1820, it accounted for 42%. In an economy reliant on exports to acquire the goods and credit it needed for growth. New Orleans had become the pivot of economic expansion, the point of union, as one visitor wrote, between Europe and America, industry and frontier. Its proliferating newspaper columns were filled with long lists of ship landings and departures, ads for goods imported, brokers' pleas for more cotton, offerings of commercial credit, and notices of bank directors' meetings. Economic acceleration loomed over Rachel in mountain ranges of cotton bales. These were the changes that flowed through the man's hands like the warp and weft of fine cotton, and these were the changes that swept Rachel and the others, five droplets in a human flood, past him and around the corner onto charters. The cathedral loomed above the roofs of the stores to the right. Two blocks more, and they reached the intersection with St. Louis Street. On their right stood a two-story stucco building, a wooden box, the height of a bench, weighted by its exterior wall. The white man leading them opened the door and stepped inside under a swinging sign that said, simply, Mosperos. Last of all, Rachel caught the door with her left hand and stepped over the threshold. In 1819, it was hard to come to the city without being taken to Mosperos' coffee house. If New Orleans was the pivot of southwestern and even national expansion, much of the city's commerce rotated around this specific point, a coffee house that was nothing like Starbucks. One visitor complained that, as this is a coffee house, you can here find all cordials but coffee. Whiskey fumes cut through tobacco haze, revealing to Rachel the waist-high bar running the length of the back wall. Behind it, hovering, a middle-aged man of Mediterranean origin. His eyeglass manufactory straggled on next door, but Moss Perot spent most of his time chasing cash over here. He'd sell you a glass of wine or liquor. He'd even sell you, if the right chance presented. Only a year or two after Rachel came to Moss Perot's, when an immigrant German redemptioner, or indentured servant, died in rural Louisiana, the man's little white daughter would allegedly be sold as a slave here, like hundreds of other daughters. For the past few years, Mosperot's main trade had been providing a place for others to meet and speculate, and today, several dozen white men were seated at the tables scattered around the sand-covered floor that eliminated the need for spittoons. Some of the men turned toward the newcomers when the door opened, Rachel took inventory. Some were in their twenties, some older. Some wore hats, some did not. Most dressed in the styles of the time. Long trousers, dark jackets over white shirts with cravats. One man of narrow frame wore all black. Rachel might have recognized him from earlier. He was the man in the rowboat. Rachel would also have seen how they looked, how they gazed at her, and yet through and beyond her, too, appraising her, and fitting her into calculations that stretched on to the future's horizon. Here's how William Hayden felt on the receiving end of that gaze. 
Sold to Kentucky as a boy in the 1790s, he was dealt again in 1812 to a man named Phillips. This new owner, a Mississippi Valley version of a Georgia man, carried people down the river to sell them from his flatboat to planters in Natchez, at New Orleans, and in small Louisiana towns. One day, a merchant named Castleman came to talk to Phillips. Castleman was anxious to secure me, Hayden remembered, and his smile revealed the joy that the wolf feels when pouncing upon a lamb. Wolves, Rachel felt their eyes. The key to all the commodities sold at Mosperos, even cotton, was flesh. When she had boarded the temperance, she had already known that she was going to be sold in New Orleans. African Americans in Maryland were learning about New Orleans, just as they had learned about Georgia. Rachel could now see the line of men, women, and children standing against the far wall, and she saw that Mosperos was the place where the sale would happen. But even had she been blind, the palpable anticipation in the air would have revealed the place's nature. That desire was not for her alone as a slave, or as a woman, though both of those desires were part of the combustible mixture. The anticipation was part of the identity of the specific white men who waited in the room. They weren't slave traders in the same sense that the term describes either a Georgia man, like McGiffin, or a Phillips, or their successors who would work in New Orleans in later years. Those were people who specialized in buying enslaved people in one place, taking them to another, and selling them there. As of 1819, professional slave traders were rare in New Orleans. No specialists kept a private jail, like the two dozen that would cluster by the 1850s along Gravier and Barone Streets, just southeast of where the New Orleans Superdome now stands. Nor would one find at the levee in 1819 dedicated slave ships, like those that eventually plied the waters between the Chesapeake and the Mississippi. On an 1817 journey down the Mississippi, an Englishman noticed that in the taverns where businessmen met along the way to New Orleans, there are many men of real, but more of fictitious capital. In their occupations, they are not confined to any one particular pursuit, the same person often being farmer, store and hotel keeper, land jobber, brewer, steamboat owner, and slave dealer. Most important, all are speculators, and each man anticipates making a fortune, not by patient industry and upright conduct, but by a lucky hit. Such were the men who collected here at Mosperos. Take the one in black, sipping cold water, for John McDonough was an abstemious Presbyterian. McDonough had come from Rachel's own Baltimore, two decades earlier, not as goods for sale, but with a cargo owned by merchant employers. He sold it, remitted the proceeds, and struck out on his own. Rivals claim that McDonough and his business partner, Richard Shepard, intentionally planted land sale rumors in Mosperos, gossip that raised the price of McDonough's own property holdings, which covered much of Louisiana. Yet, McDonough was neither a landlord nor, though he bought and sold slaves, a slave trader. McDonough was an entrepreneur. He modestly clothed his desires in solemn black broadcloth, but he was a disruptive, destructive force that broke and remade the world, just like a more flamboyant man whose gaze Rachel also crossed. No single man was more influential in shaping the New Orleans cotton trade into the world's biggest one than Vincent Nolte. He first came at the behest of the Anglo-Dutch firm Hope and Company, before 1812, bringing half a million pounds in paper backed by the Bank of England. With this stake, he built a circuit of cotton and capital between the old world and the new. 
After the War of 1812 ended, he linked up with Baring Brothers, the massive London commercial bank that had financed the U.S. purchase of Louisiana, and whose pressure had convinced American and British negotiators to swallow pride and sign the Treaty of Ghent at the end of 1814. Baring's money allowed Nolte to accumulate huge piles of cotton on the levee after 1815, and by 1819, he was buying 20,000 to 40,000 bales per year, 4 to 8 percent of U.S. exports, and up to a quarter of what passed through New Orleans. One could argue that, as much as any great inventor, factory owner, or banker, it was Vincent Nolte who made modernization possible. He shaped the patterns and institutions of the most important commodity trade of the 19th century, the one that fed Britain's mills with the most important raw material of the Industrial Revolution. The huge quantities of money he channeled from Britain into this room at Mosperos stimulated greater and greater cotton production along the river valleys that fed New Orleans. Nolte's modernization of the trade incidentally made it both more efficient and more open to new players. He gathered and disseminated information about the state of Mississippi Valley markets by creating a printed circular that quoted the ongoing price for all sorts of goods in New Orleans, what his contemporaries called a price current. Usually, we think of the architects of modern capitalism as rational. They might be greedy, and they might be profit-seekers, but they reject gambling and achieve accumulation through self-denial and efficiency. Accounts of economics usually teach that people are driven by calculations about utility and price, and that market behavior is predictable and rational. Nolte, however, was unquestionably a gambler. He didn't care about efficiency. He wanted piles of money, and he wanted to win. Make no mistake, he didn't think he was trusting to luck. He believed that he understood the game of speculation well enough to know its secrets. But he rolled the dice. Over the decades, Nolte gained and lost vast sums of money. He even put his life at stake for his prospect of gain, fighting four duels with business rivals in 1814 and 1815. If Nolte wanted to make an incomparable fortune, it wasn't because he thought success equaled salvation, or because profit was an end in itself exactly. Nolte's actions spurred economic modernization, ever more efficient exploitation of ever greater amounts of resources, by stimulating the production of enormous quantities of cotton. In the real history of the real modern world, change has been jolted forward again and again by people like Nolte, who in their dice-rolling bids to make massive profits disturb existing equilibriums by introducing new elements. The new elements they introduce as levers of dominance might be technological innovations, but entrepreneurs rarely create these innovations themselves. Instead, they figure out how to reap their benefits in order to rip market share and profits away from other capitalists who are invested in status quo technologies and staler business models. They are architects of the dynamic of creative destruction that iconoclastic economist Joseph Schumpeter identified as the core engine of capitalism's growth. Creative destruction produces wrenching shocks, devastating depressions following dramatic expansions, wars and conquests, and enslavements. Here, in New Orleans, cotton and slaves enabled creative destruction to produce the modern economy. Nolte said he did what he did because of something he wanted to feel, what he called the charm, the spell he wove upon himself by knitting a vast web of extended commerce with himself at the center. And Moss Perot's was a room full of Nolte's, 
for whom creative destruction was motivation as much as process. Along with McDonough and Shepard and Nolte, their ranks of the tables included such men as Beverly Chew and Richard Ralph, William Kenner, Stephen Henderson, and French speakers like merchant Louis Le Seine and broker P.F. de Burg, who cut deals with Creole planters. They, too, loved the sense of power they got from exerting what Nolte called the enterprising mercantile spirit, cutting out rivals, knowing that people far away were bending to their wills. They bought cotton from the interior and shipped it to Liverpool. They bought cargoes from England and Germany and sold their contents to stores strung like beads on the rivers all the way up to Louisville. Using geographical position, special knowledge, and special access to essential commodities, these non-specialized, flexible entrepreneurs organized from scratch a massive increase in the global economy's most important raw material. Over the course of the five years that began in 1815, southern cotton became the world's most widely traded commodity, and New Orleans became the gravitational center of the system of buying and distributing it. The city doubled the amount of cotton it shipped, soon surpassing the southeastern ports of Charleston and Savannah. Moss Perot's was the first center of the New Orleans cotton trade. It was also the site around which another new market was coalescing. As the Gazette de la Louisiane reported, at Moss Perot's you could buy a cargo of Irish and English cloth, a pilot boat, a piece of land on Charter Street, a brick house, a plantation, that of Madame Andre, Manuel's widow, in fact, and Les Eclaves. One could buy people here on any day save Sunday by bidding at auctions or negotiating with these entrepreneurs. In addition to their other activities, all these men sold and bought substantial numbers of slaves there. Kenner and Henderson sold at least 150 slaves at Moss Perot's between 1815 and 1820. McDonough's trading partner, Shepard, sold 97. Scottish cotton merchant Thomas Urquhart sold 76 people, and so on. And as with cotton, at Moss Perot's, these creative destroyers established access to supply, stimulated demand, and created a place where a purchaser could always count on finding what he wanted. In other words, they made a market, one that, though centered in the lower Mississippi Valley, stretched far beyond this specific place to creep tendrils of incentive reaching into Maryland farms, Alabama cotton docks, New York banks, and London parlors. This slave market would continue to develop over the next four decades in dynamic relationship with the development of the cotton economy. As we trace Rachel's path, we can see how that market-making happened. Her transport depended on the actions of federal and state governments. The compromises of the Constitution permitted the transport of slaves across state lines. Congress also protected transport with its 1793 law that blocked non-slaveholding states from sheltering runaways. Meanwhile, like most other enslaved people transported from the southeast to New Orleans in the pre-1820s period, Rachel came by a route that resembled the paths of other commodities to the levy. Southwestern entrepreneurs asked their southeastern contacts to buy them slaves. Sometimes these were specific requests— a blacksmith from Maryland for Stephen Minor of Natchez, for instance. But usually they were general, as in, procure me hands from Virginia. For now, the people procured were sent on regular merchant ships, such as the Clio, on which Benjamin Latrobe sailed from Norfolk in 1818. 
The Clio also carried regular merchandise and one Dr. Day, who was moving to the Red River to become a cotton planter. While Day transported 12 of his own slaves, the ship also bore Tom, who had been consigned, like Rachel, by Baltimore merchant David Anderson. Tom cost Anderson $800, plus a fare of $30, but he died off the coast of Florida. Watching the Clio's sailors throw his body into the water, white passengers speculated that he would have brought close to $1,200 in New Orleans. Anderson's New Orleans consignee had lost quite an investment. After reaching New Orleans, slaves like Rachel and Tall William were often kept on board their vessels until they could be sold. In other cases, entrepreneurs locked captives in stables, in the city jail, or with other commodities in counting houses and warehouses. William Kenner kept people at his own slave labor camp until he considered them seasoned enough to sell. The slave sellers also locked people in Mosperos, in the ballroom adjacent to the bar, or upstairs in the meeting room. The same one where Andrew Jackson had berated the gathered city fathers for quailing in the face of Pakenham's redcoats. But Mosperos made a poor jail. In October 1819, the Roman brothers, local enslavers who branded any person they bought, purchased a woman named Maria for the high price of $1,500. They left her in Mosperos' keeping while they finished their town business. Reluctant to endure the hot iron the Romans were paying so much to inflict on her, Maria escaped. Seven weeks later, she was still running. Yet, despite its inadequacies as a cage, Mosperos was the pole around which the market in enslaved people orbited between 1815 and 1819. Even if the man or woman wasn't physically present, the buyer could read the enslaved person's name in the Louisiana Courier as he sat here. He mentally compared the description to the others who were paraded here. The seller came here to meet him and arrange the sale. The papers changed hands here in the barroom. The forces generated in this long, low, smoky room changed the lives of thousands of Rachels and Williams. The acts of New Orleans entrepreneurs also changed their own lives, and not simply by enriching their account balances. For men like the entrepreneurs in Mosperos, the birth of the modern world opened access to powers that few who were not absolute monarchs had ever felt before. These sensations were generally only available to those with the luck of being born white, male, in the right place, and to the right family. Still, old mercantile alliances and families were being bypassed as new men created new money-making empires. Imagine the luck of a boy like Henry Palfrey, son of a failed father, who became a clerk for Beverly Chew and Richard Ralph of New Orleans at age 12. As Palfrey grew to manhood in the environment of Mosperos, internalizing its desires, he would write commands and requests. He sent them as letters, and in consequence, things happened that his father, a frustrated merchant of an earlier generation, could not make happen. Huge quantities of cotton bales moved. People were sold away from their families. Piles of cloth and iron loaded, money transferred. The way entrepreneurs assimilated that environment's values and came to see those values as normal reveals much about why they devoted their lives to creating an extended commerce in the southwestern United States. They spoke as if their own bodies were doing the things that their deals, sales of cotton, purchases of land or slaves, payments of money on the other side of the ocean, made happen. Yet not their whole bodies. There was one specific part of the body they talked as if they were using. 
They wrote notes and letters that informed their correspondents that they held slaves on hand and money in hand. Important letters came to hand. They got cotton off their hands and into the market. In 1815, waiting for prices to rise, John Richards offered the Bank of the State of Mississippi a note to ensure that he would not yet have to sell the cotton that I now have in hand. Individual promises to pay that drew upon credit with other merchants were notes of hand. Few parts of the body have a more intimate and direct connection to the mind than the hands, and when entrepreneurs used words to grasp the control ropes of the new economy, they described the sensation as if the new world's powers were held in their own, like puppet strings. They produced concrete results at distance, using words that their hands wrote on pieces of paper. The fingers at the end of the writer's arm might not actually hold the material thing, the bales of cotton, the stacks of coin, the ship whose captain and crew were directed to carry them, that the figurative language of trade set it grasp. But in a very real sense, the writer controlled these things, these people. These writers' hands could grasp much more than the hands of merchants and traders in the past, because the new dynamic growth of Western capitalism was producing massive quantities of what the great 20th century theologian Robert Farrar Capon called right-handed power, the strength to force an outcome. Capon identified right-handed power as being like the idea of God held by many believers of many religions, a deity working in straight line ways, exerting crushing force, throwing the wicked into the flames, drowning the sinful earth. Right-handed power is the power of domination, kings, weapons, and the letter of the law. In the early 19th century, those societies and individuals who were winning in the sorting out of power and status accumulated unprecedented right-handed strength. They got more guns and bullets, more soldiers, the ability to knock down other people's defenses and force them to trade on the terms most favorable to the West. They dominated other peoples to a degree unprecedented in human history, and within victorious new modernized nations, right-handed power was increasingly distributed in a lopsided fashion. Members of the new leading classes, people like the men at Mosperos, but also the cotton mill owners of Manchester, the merchants of New York, the bankers of London, got most of that power in their hands. So if one had to pick the hand to which letter writers referred as they sat there at Mosperos, one might say, right. Even though the effects of entrepreneurs' decisions sometimes played out a long way from the places where the decisions were taken, they were still straight-line effects. The letter is written and sent. The Maryland trading partner reads it, deposits the bill of exchange, goes to the probate auction, buys a woman advertised as a house servant, and takes her to the next Louisiana-bound ship. So the exchanges of the cotton economy, wrote one white man to whom Louisiana success, he said, had given a new sense of independence, put it in your power, into your hands, he told his relative, to enrich yourself. A man presses a button with his right index finger on the machine of the trading world, with its new markets and opportunities, and things happen to benefit him. Things involving sterling bills, a huge pile of cotton, a long roster of slaves. The emerging modern world strengthened the right hands of these men, offering them the opportunity to make everything new and different, to shape it along the lines of their desires. Much of the muscular power in right hands was nerved by credit, 
itself a phenomenon almost as magical-seeming as the idea that one could direct far-off events with one's hands. Credit is belief. The word comes from the Latin credere, that brings value today in exchange for a promise to pay in the future. Credit allowed entrepreneurs and others to spend tomorrow's money today, accomplishing trades and investments that would, the borrower believed, make more wealth tomorrow. When granted on easy terms, credit was what allowed trade to spread, to move smoothly, and to enrich people around the Atlantic Basin. New Orleans entrepreneur William Kenner, for instance, could use bills of exchange, promises to pay that originated with a British merchant firm, to buy cotton bales from his planter trading partner, John Minor. Kenner could then ship the bales to Liverpool and sell them to a merchant house, which would in turn credit Kenner's account and redeem the bills of exchange from the original firm. The merchant house could allow Kenner to draw on his account by writing checks or drafts. It could also, if its partners believed in Kenner's financial future, allow him to write his own notes of hand and negotiate them in the United States, using them as his source of credit. Kenner could sell such a note for cash here at Mosperos or trade it for goods or people if the seller believed that the Liverpool firm would honor Kenner's hand. How much the person accepting the note of hand believed in it, how much he or she credited its magic, determined not only whether he or she would accept it as money, but also how much money one believed it to be. Bills traded at a discount on the face value of the note, a floating value that also served as an interest rate. One might give $96 for a bill that one could then, in six months, exchange for $100. One has just lent and been repaid at about 8% annual interest, in other words. The buying and selling of promises to pay was itself a business. Vincent Nolte's newspaper advertisements proclaimed his willingness to buy exchange on Paris, New York, or London notes that were payable in those cities, which Nolte could send to pay his own bills there. But belief in credit must be created. People must come to trust in its institutions and in the reliability of their trading partners in order for credit to spring into life as money and serve as fuel for explosive growth. And like every other faith, credit has a history. And Rachel came to Mosperos at an important moment in that story. Jeffersonian Republicans had killed off the First Bank of the United States in 1811. But during the War of 1812, Financial chaos made it very difficult for James Madison's government to raise the money it needed to fight the war. Following the country's close call, in 1816, the Republicans chartered, for 20 years, the second bank of the United States. The BUS was intended, in fact, to anchor the broad economic program advanced by the National Republican faction, a group of young leaders who were elbowing out the old Jeffersonians. They included Henry Clay of Kentucky and John Calhoun of South Carolina's Cotton Frontier, and their plan to use federal power to create a modern economy in the United States pivoted on the bank's ability to lure foreign investments in its bonds, stabilize the financial system, and feed credit into entrepreneurs' hands. Their American system, as Clay termed it, also included a planned network of internal improvements, canals, roads, and river clearance projects to lower the cost of transportation and encourage production for distant markets. A tariff that protected domestic textile production would allow the American economy to follow the British model of industrialization. The new BUS, headquartered in Philadelphia, 
also established branches in major trading centers such as New Orleans. But most of the branches ignored their mandate to regulate financial flows. Instead, as local banks sprang up like fungus, the Kentucky State Legislature chartered 40 banks in 1818 alone. The BUS allowed credit to slosh into every cranny of the expanding nation. In the short term, a runaway burst of prosperity silenced traditionalists who warned that paper money and banks were scams. In April 1814, there were 38 flatboats from upriver tied up alongside the New Orleans levee. Four years later, there were 340. The financial giants Bering Brothers, Hope & Company, and other European cotton buyers injected millions of pounds of credit to pay Nolte and his peers. Textile and other merchants looking to unload their wartime backlog of goods advanced millions more in merchandise to American distributors. The BUS directly lent huge amounts of credit to land speculators, and the bank's directors and employees borrowed from the cash box for their own endeavors. For enslaved people like Rachel, the sudden growth in financial confidence did not mean liberation, but the opposite. The bank helped both white Americans and overseas investors to have faith in a future in which the debts of slave buyers would be paid off by ever-growing revenues from the cash-earning commodities that industrializing Britain wanted. One could see the visible signs of this quickening right-handed power all across the southwestern United States, not just in Mossboro's, but also, for instance, in Huntsville, Alabama, a frontier village into which a dust-caked Virginian named Francis E. Reeves rode on the same January 1819 day on which Rachel and William arrived on the levee. Soon, Reeves would sit in the state legislature in Richmond, but today he was leading a train of twenty-odd enslaved people whom he and his employers had marched from Southampton County, Virginia. Reeves and the employees who helped guard the coffle were explorers of a new country of credit and trade, searching out ways to extract new yield from human energy stored in the slave cabins of Virginia's south side. Their expedition extended Georgia trades west by hundreds of miles. Following Cherokee trails from the left corner of North Carolina across the spine of the Smoky Mountains, they had now descended into the valley of the Tennessee River, which flowed by Huntsville. The Tennessee could carry cotton-laden flatboats into the Mississippi, so Huntsville was tied to the invisible cord of trade and credit attached to New Orleans. And thanks to the investments channeled through the Bank of the United States and the possibilities of trade, the value that lay before Reeves' coffle was suddenly blooming with both schemes and cotton. Anne Royal, an acerbic Pennsylvania travel writer who went to Alabama in 1818 to get material for a new book, found that her usually dismissive authorial voice cracked when she crested the same ridges that Reeves' forced migrants now descended into Huntsville. The cotton fields now began to appear. These are astonishingly large, from four to five hundred acres in a field. It is without parallel. Fancy is inadequate to conceive a prospect more grand. There has not been a single person settling in this country who has anything of capital who has not become wealthy in a few years, claimed Virginia-born migrant John Campbell. He clearly suffered from the Alabama fever, as people called it, the fervent belief that every white person who could get frontier land and put enslaved people to work making cotton would inevitably become rich. And it was credit that raised their temperature. 
Most of the settlers in Alabama were squatting on land that had once been included in the Yazoo Purchase, had later been surrendered by the Creeks at Fort Jackson, and was now being sold by the Federal Land Office in Huntsville to purchasers who typically relied on credit. By the end of 1818, the Land Office had dealt away almost one million acres, which officially brought in $7 million. But speculative purchasers, including Andrew Jackson, James Madison, and the chief employees of the local land office, paid only $1.5 million up front. Of that amount, $1 million was in the form of scrip that the federal government had given to investors who received compensation after the 1810 Fletcher v. Peck decision. Thus, government-supplied credit had financed 93% of the cost of the land in the valley before Reeves, money that would have to be repaid from sales of cotton not yet planted by slaves not yet bought. No wonder Reeves marched these enslaved people to Huntsville. Here was a prime hunting ground for slave sales. Credit appeared to be turning enslavers' Alabama dreams into reality. Alabama was already third in the United States in total cotton produced and first in per capita production. And not just Alabama enslavers, between 1815 and 1819, settlers transported nearly 100,000 unfree migrants to southern Louisiana, central Tennessee, and the area around Natchez, Mississippi. Alrighty, context of white supremacy. Making sure we uh, got the full segment included. Uh, we will pick up there next Friday and hopefully without all of the uh, disturbances that made it a challenging broadcast all the way through but uh, that should do it for this week we will look forward if folks have any comments they want to get in uh, what they heard from the second audio segment uh, the number again 641-715-3640 and the code is 564 Nine four three pound. Press star six if you would like to participate. Lots of focus on New Orleans. Would have been cool if we'd read this right after uh, Mr. Rivlin's uh, Katrina after the flood. Anywho, uh, everyone who dialed in with a hand up should be with us. Uh, we'll get Mr. Demery for first since he didn't get to share anything after the first audio. I think the uh, disruption in the program probably threw him off as well. But Mr. Demery for should be with us as well as Thomas in New York and uh, Raz. Uh, I'll nab any other hands as I see them. Mr. Demery for do you have any comments you wanted to share, sir? Uh, yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, like you like you said, it was uh, there was some interruptions during the first broadcast, and I had these notes <laughs> that I wasn't able to, uh, you know, do my commentary on. But I tried back later, and I guess the second se segment, you know, went through pretty good. I have to catch it on the archives, but. Uh, <clears throat> From what I call from the second uh, broadcast is that the author was using this young slave girl, Rachel, in contrast with, uh, I guess his name was Nolte, Vincent Nolte, and 
you know, the, his writing style has me, you know, having a negative, you know, interpretation of how he's writing. Because if I had been able to give my first commentary, I would have brought up the point that he said that uh, the rebellion was the largest rebellion before the Civil War. But that is incorrect because there was the Black Seminole and the Slave Rebellion in 1835-1838. That was before the Civil War. And it seems to be a concerted effort to uh, hide the Black Seminole Rebellion. And I, I, I couldn't get to the bottom of it, why they would want to do that, except for the fact that they did not want to give uh, a view of black freedom fighters being successful to any degree. But like I say, I, I believe that uh, him using Rachel and then in contrast to this naughty guy, it's just an act of racism because you take a young slave girl that's obviously powerless, you know, and unaware of what her life is going to encounter in the next years, you know, if you count all the rapes and the oppression that she's going to endure, and then you contrast them with some evil capitalist entrepreneur they're calling now, but they're no better than slave-owning, slave-trading, uh, inhumane, evil individuals. And then the basis of capitalism was uh, perpetrated, you know, from their evil and diabolical schemes. So the forms of credit, which is actually in effect today, and the way capitalists is set up, was all uh, originated on the blacks of black people. And uh, I'll mute my line, give somebody else a chance. I didn't uh, uh, really get a chance to give all my notes, but uh, I will pick it up next time. Thanks for taking the call, Gus. Yes, sir. Mr. Demery 4, hopefully we will do better next week. Uh, I think Roz and uh, Thomas in New York should be uh, with us also. And any of the folks that are listening in, you can just email if you have comments you want to share. Uh, Roz and Thomas, you should be with us. Yes, I had a couple of points I wanted to make. Um, there were a few sections that were really powerful that stood out. Um, one is on page 90 where it says, uh, Right-handed power is the power of domination, kings, weapons, and the letter of the law. In the early 19th century, those societies and individuals who were winning in the sorting out of power and status accumulated unprecedented right-handed strength. They got more guns and bullets, more soldiers. The ability to knock down other people's defenses and force them to trade on the terms most favorable to the West. They dominated other peoples to a degree unprecedented in human history. 
and within victorious new modernized nations, right-handed power was increasingly distributed in a lopsided fashion. Members of the new leading class, people like the men at Masperos, but also the cotton mill owners of Manchester, the merchants of New York, the bankers of London, got most of that power in their hands. And this section was really, really important, and it stood out to me, simply because right-handed power, to, to me, the way it's spoken about here, it really speaks about uh, violent white supremacy, and it speaks to their ability to fight amongst themselves to see whose version of white supremacy would be most dominant. And obviously, at that point, was America's time to shine. So, um, like he said, it would be uh, force they'll be able to force people to trade on terms most favorable to the West, which I'm sure he's indicating is the United States, um, as far as the United States' rise to becoming a world power at that particular point, based on, on the money they amassed over the free labor of black people. And um, there's another section at the bottom of the same page that says, that I find important too, it says, much of the muscular power in the right hand was nerved by credit, itself a phenomenon almost as magical seeming as the idea that one could direct far-off events with one's hands. Credit is belief. The word comes from the Latin fadir. That brings value today in exchange for a promise to pay in the future. Credit allowed entrepreneurs and others to spend tomorrow's money today, accomplishing trades and investments that the borrower believed would make more wealth tomorrow. When granted on easy terms, credit was what allowed trade to spread, to move smoothly, and to enrich people around the Atlantic Basin. And this kind of speaks to credit basically being a belief in white supremacy, the religion of white supremacy. Um, they had such a belief in their ability to brutalize black people uh, perpetually um, as, ad infinitum um, that basically credit was now being provided on the backs of, of black people later that had not even brought into, had not been brought into fruition yet. And this kind of speaks, speaks to something we talk about quite often about white people planning in advance. They're planning 50 years, 100 years, 200 years in advance. And that's something that um, makes white supremacy so hard to assail is because they, they are so far forward thinking. And as a result of the, the uh, psychological pressure placed on black people, we are only, at this, po at this point, we are only acting in a reactionary fashion. So every time that they, they put one of their players into motion, we're always trying to play catch up rather than trying to think ahead and trying to, in some ways, predict what white people have in store for us. I believe we have more than enough history under our belt to be able to do something like that as far as uh, being able to potentially predict some of the things that they're trying to do to us um, or planning to do to us. But right now we're in such a reactionary stage that learning about the system of white supremacy is of the utmost importance um, in order for us to be able to do so. And then um, there was another section on page 92 that said, for enslaved people like Rachel, the Southern growth of financial, financial confidence did not mean liberation, but the opposite. The bank helped both white Americans and overseas investors to have faith in a future in which the debts of slave buyers would be paid off by ever-growing revenues from the cash-burning commodities that industrializing Britain wanted. One could see the visible signs of this quickening right-handed power all across the southwestern United States. And it just really speaks to, again, that the, the, this whole idea of credit really looked like the extended far-reaching extended beliefs in racism and white supremacy that white people had. And then there was an area that really talks about black people being the engine of white supremacy that was on page 93. It says, credit appeared to be turning slaves Alabama kings into reality. 
Alabama was already third in the United States in total cotton produced and first per capita production, per capita production. And not just Alabama and slavers between 1815 and 1819, settlers transported nearly 100,000 unfree migrants to south and southern Louisiana, central Tennessee, and the area around Natchez, Mississippi. These slaves cleared fields, bought on spec, grew cotton to, to make interest payments and keep new loans flowing, and served as collateral besides. The dramatic increase in the ability of would-be entrepreneurs to borrow money had extended their right-handed reach across time and space over mountains and across seas. And it's really showing that, like, black gold. We were black gold. And um, it made me think of something that um, happened to my wife um, when she worked in the fashion industry right after 9-11. Her boss, uh, a Jewish, white Jewish male, came to her and told her that uh, he actually thanked her and said, thanks to your people, we were able to quickly bounce back after 9-11 when a lot of businesses were not simply because black people as consumers spent so much money on that company's products, which they made uh, women's handbags and um, children's book bags, that they were able to make money at a time when the rest of us, a lot of people in, in other aspects of the same industry were not able to make any money at all. And basically that spoke to us being black gold to her boss's uh, company, the way that in this particular section, they're saying that we were the economic engine behind credit, which basically means we were the economic engine behind white supremacy, the religion of white supremacy. Thank you, and I'll meet my line. Uh, Thomas, did you have a comment you wanted to make sure you got in, sir? Um, yes, man, I was great with both Mr. Demery and Mr. Locks um, added in. And um, I just wanted to say, man, um, they hear a lot of talking about Bearings, the Bearings brothers, and um, I mean, you talk about... I mean, straight up, you know, he was just talking about the credit. I mean, the, the whole system, um, their financial system, you know, um, area economics runs on credit. And um, Bearings, who uh, funded Napoleon's war against Haiti, but um, Haiti ended up, you know, pretty much winning. So uh, to cut their losses, they took... Um, Napoleon's land in America and sold it to three cents on the dollar to the United States. Napoleon had nothing to do with that. Um, he was in so much debt to them, they just took what he, you know, they're trying to get their money back, and then they're running this whole thing through Louisiana. And um, today, Barron's is known as ING Bank, um, huge banking system. Um, you know, they just changed the name of these banks, but. It was just very interesting and um to see that the whole banking system as you know it today was set up in not in New York but in Louisiana, you know, in New Orleans. And um I I, I don't know if he's gonna go into it, but one of the Barons brothers, um, hugest rivals came up, you know, during the Civil War named J T Morgan and um, you know, he tried to shift, you know, create the shift to New York. But it was very interesting and um I agree with um Mr. Demery, the way this guy is writing it, it's very choppy. You know, he's going in and out. He started talking about the, the girl. She's at the place, and they're sizing her up. And then he went into a whole other, seemed like, um, chapter into something else before he got back to her. And I'm still waiting for him to really make the point he was trying to drive home with her. So um, just an interesting read, and thanks for um, doing it, even with all the technical difficulties and stuff. Right on, right on. Hopefully, uh, it won't be a holiday. Oh, it will be a holiday next week. <laughs> It'll be January first. Hopefully, uh, that's not as big as as this one. So, uh, hopefully, we'll do 
we'll do better uh, next week. Um, I will have to say, even, you know, with with the issues folks have raised and, and questions that I have about, you know, some of the things that are in, I'm I'm enjoying this read a lot more than Ta-Nehisi Coates Between the World and Me. Uh, he's still a victim of racism and VGQ. He can say whatever he wants to about racism, white supremacy, but just evaluating books on racism. I'm uh, enjoying this one a lot more, even though racist suspect wrote the book. And I think you all have made some valid uh, racism, valid points uh, as to uh, either the way that it's being written or whether or not even uh, some portions of it are are correct or telling the whole story. That being said, uh, the second audio segment, um, I thought this portion of it, even though we did hear a little bit of chapter three in the first audio segment, but in the second audio segment, I felt like that really kind of got to the crux of what this book is supposed to be about, how the, the whole economic structure uh, of this country, the foundation of it is the torture and war of black people. I thought he laid out just a lot of great information, the establishment of a lot of the banking system and uh, the credit system that they have in this area is is all on the neck of black people. Uh, Just great to get all that laid out. And even globally, it's not like this is just uh, white people in the States that are part of this banking system and, and making money. This is whites all over the world uh, making money, stomping on and, and terrorizing black people. Um, I I don't know if it's funny or I don't know what the, the accurate description of it would be. But when they said that in uh, New Orleans, you could buy, you know, you could buy your niggers and, and everything else. This is a booming town. Uh, but you could not buy a Negro on Sunday. That was the Sabbath. You could buy Negroes six days a week, but not on Sunday. And I just, the gall, right? The religion of white supremacy to give some veneer that, you know, something is sacred and holy and we're not going to do, this is the Lord's day. We don't do this sort of, I mean, just the audacity uh, and particularly hearing all this information about the, the critical importance of, like I said, I wish we had done this a little bit closer to uh, Katrina. We were doing all that, focusing on, on what happened there, seeing the historical importance uh, of this city founded on black suffering and black misery on uh, comparing it to last week. It was Georgia. Right. And they talked about you didn't want to be sold down uh, south of Georgia where they just beat and worked you to death and, and the whole nine where for black people, Louisiana or New Orleans specifically started to have that uh, same reputation. But hearing about all of the things that happened in this city, I think I had said before, I think I said it last week, New Orleans, the one of the uh, reputations for New Orleans, the Big Easy. And the other is uh, the city that care forgot. And it got those names for everything that you're hearing in this book. This is it's total lawlessness like whatever selling niggers and raping people and prostitution and whatever i mean it's no rules it's no nothing if you can't make it here you can't make it in it that's why it got those names to begin with and just hearing them when they're talking about the coffee shop and he said it's not like starbucks uh this is a place where you can sell niggers and uh we don't even have a hard floor. We have uh we have sand on the floor, so we don't even have a need for spittoons. And just even those sort of details for me, I think whites they invest a lot of time and energy in trying to present, particularly when they're talking about like 
uh, white, they are white ancestors. They are racist ancestors. They will try and give you a lie to make these people seem like they are just the most refined and civilized and, and just the pinnacle of culture and refined. These folks are dueling and spitting on the floor, not to mention the selling and raping of blacks, but I mean just everything else in addition that they're doing. It's like these folks are thugs and just derelicts. I mean, uh, I, I think this is at least the second time that we've read a book just this year. I think that was in uh, Ben Tillman and the Reconstruction of White Supremacy, where they were dueling and fighting other white people and grappling and brawling and all this other stuff. It's just like, man, this is total thuggery and they will try to refine and clean it up to make it look a bit more civilized like no we don't do all that we're not this is the foundation this is the core that line in ben tillman tillman's book where he says uh no matter the white person if you scratch them underneath there's a savage uh this book to me is just showing the total savageness uh, of white people and they enjoy that that's really at the core that's what they revere and I think we touched on this before when whites read a book like this I think that's what they appreciate they enjoy they're not sorry we talked about that earlier this week they're not sorry about going in and burning down and pillaging black people in Wilmington they're not sorry about New Orleans that's the whole history of this sound stomping on black people. Yes, we made the Negros build the levee in New Orleans. Yes, this whole town was about selling black people and terrorizing black people. Yes, they're not sorry about it. They don't feel bad about it. They have tremendous reverence for it. And as the right-handed power said, we look forward to doing this on into the future and predicting how it's going to be done. Just uh, really stood out to me. I really appreciate the economic details and, and like I said, centering all of that as being the foundation economic foundation being uh, black torture, black enslavement, uh, and then getting more of the details about how prominently uh, New Orleans figured uh, into this development, even on a global scale, how prominently uh, New Orleans was featured. Um, we did our three hours in a, in a kind of chopped up kind of way. Anybody have anything else quickly they wanted to make sure they got in before we uh, wrap up? And again, if folks listening in, if you, with the disruption and all, if you have anything you want to email in and we'll read it next week hopefully we'll be clear anything folks want to make sure they get in before we wrap things up this week yeah um, just real quickly man um what you were just saying was so true and here it is new orleans um is making i think that that 40 percent of the world's cotton which is the premier crop of the world so it's, i mean the whole backbone of the whole world's economic system is running through New Orleans, and he did all this great writing about all these prominent white figures, and um, but he was, you know, it could be an act of white supremacy. He's not hammering home that without them slaves, none of this is possible. Uh, what, what's going on with those slaves right now? How are they making these forty percent of the world's? What what type of brutalization are they under on these plantations? Now, I would want to hear about that. You know, um, that that that's one thing I think. If a black writer was writing it, he might have gotten more into detail. Well, right now, while these huge profits are going on, man, the slavery, the, the brutalization on these plantations is increased, I'm sure, probably triple, you know, um, to make to meet up with their demands. Yes. 
I'd like to say one one last thing. I don't know if uh, anybody mentioned it before, but there's at least three incidents in these uh, two chapters where the author is making reference to free blacks either owning slaves or actually operating as uh, slave catchers. And I, I believe he made a reference to even some free blacks riding with Wade Hampton. You know, I might be mistaken, but it seems to be that he's using conflation, you know, to say that blacks were complicit in this slave trading as well as whites, you know, to minimize and downplay the significance of white terrorism and just the uh, inhumane efforts that uh, white people were up to. I mute my line. Mm, yeah, that when I I think uh, after the first audio segment ended, I think he had another portion where he said that uh, most of the free blacks. Uh, that they sided with whites in this area of the world. And I think he said specifically at a time of crisis, and I raised the question mark right there, is that accurate? Is that true? Uh, and me saying that I, I would have a quibble, uh, with, a quibble with whether or not that's accurate. I think we talked about that where, and we talked about that there, and I think some of the other passages that you uh, noted where he does have that, that black people were participating in hunting down black uh quote unquote free black people were participating in trying to catch these runaway black people or suppressing uh black rebellions um that's just one i would put my little asterisk next to like that is something i would investigate that could be as you said an act of racism by the author uh any last comment yes i had i had a last comment and that was really um really brilliant about what uh, mr Demi before brought out it made me think about uh some of the free slaves who actually own slaves, in some cases I've seen where they've actually owned their family members. It was family members they were trying to keep safe by owning them. So that is something that's very tricky. Um, and I'm, I'm with you on the asterisk. The other thing I wanted to bring up was the way that he's using these body parts for the, uh, the titles of the chapters and kind of exemplifying how these body parts support the system of white supremacy, these body parts of black people. It made me think of the 10 areas of people activity um, and the fact that, like, white people function as a super organism, and all of those 10 areas of people activity are organ systems of racism and white supremacy that they've created, and it's just something that we have to look at. We have to look at white people as a global uh, super organism of functional racist white supremacists, and the fight has to be taken global because of how they function, and um, just him using these body parts made me think of the organ systems of white supremacy being those 10 areas of people activity and how we all, um, in one way or another, support that system. Thank you. Support and are terrorized by it. Absolutely. Um, That will wrap us up for this week. Uh, Again, hoping for clarity and not all the difficulties next week. I mean, we will be back before then, so hopefully we will not have all of this uh, for any of the broadcasts between now and then and certainly, uh, hopefully we'll have a cleaner session next week, but thanks for the folks who tuned in live and were patient enough to hang in there. Uh, Folks who uh, were listening in on the phone line or online, all the folks who called in, Mr. Demery Ford, Thomas in New York, uh, Roz, appreciate it. I know we might have lost some folks uh, through the way, but the archive should be uh, pristine 
uh, you can check it out. And again, feel free to drop an email if you have comments that you want to uh, from this week. If you have comments, and then you can we can just read them uh, on the program next week. We should be on this book for you know weeks. We're uh, got a ways to go before we're done. Anywho, uh, we'll be back in about 24 hours. Uh, compensatory call in, last compensatory call in of 2015 uh, tomorrow, 9 p.m. Eastern. 6 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we'll be looking forward to catching up on observations from the past seven days. Uh, folks uh, today have had uh, any interesting events uh, with the so-called holiday, spending time with uh, other non-white people, family members. Uh, if you had any interesting conversations or how that played out, feel free to chime in tomorrow uh, to share. We'll be looking forward to hearing feedback from folks and particularly workplace racism. Again, uh, all of the office parties and all that nonsense I know is still uh, going on. If you have anything that you want to share there, being able to practice some codification on the job, let us hear it. Uh, with that, invest if you think the program is constructive. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Uh, the blog you'll see the paypal button on the top right corner if you are not into paypal drop us an email and we will get you a physical mailing address uh huge thanks to all the folks who have invested supported us down through the years kept us rolling for almost seven years uh again this time of year i would strongly recommend i would do it anyway but particularly now sobriety would be best under conditions of white terrorism that's come up in this book too um you do not want to be out on the road behind the wheel as a passenger even as a pedestrian if you're under the influence uh racists are just looking to make problems for us you never know when you're going to bump into a daniel holtzclaw darren wilson uh you don't want to do anything that's going to make their job easier to terrorize us and cause us unnecessary problems uh also, critically important, I would really minimize being around any intoxicated whites. I would avoid that at all costs if you can. Uh, it's just a super dangerous environment. It can go from zero to lethal in seconds. Uh, in the same vein, I would minimize being around non-white people if they're under the influence. Uh, it's just too much evidence that that whole environment is rife with a lot of easily avoidable problems and we have more than enough conflict on our plate as victims of racism with that we'll be back in about 24 hours our creator help us remain patient with other victims of white supremacy black people help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cows signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's brother. Problem? You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs> Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. 
Chumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.